Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Strange Familiars. If you've seen something strange, if you've seen Bigfoot, if you've seen another cryptid, if you've seen a UFO, if you've seen a ghost, if you have a true story about something unusual and you want to share it on the podcast, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. If you have a short encounter, you can also leave us a message at 717-347-8554. If your story gets cut off, you can call back and continue, or you can send us a sound file as well. That is probably the quickest way to get us your encounter right now. Seems like everybody enjoyed our Pandemonium Adventures. Parts 1 and 2 were on the regular podcast. Part 3 came out for patrons this week. So tonight I'm going to be talking with Tobe Johnson from Strange Brow Radio. If you do not subscribe already to his podcast, make sure to do that. Give him a like and subscribe wherever you're listening. It's a great podcast if you like Strange Familiars. I'm sure you'd like Strange Brow. 
Tobe was on our podcast before, and we've kept in contact since then. And if you listen to the Pandemonium episodes, you know that his story is kind of woven into the story of Pandemonium a little bit as well. So when the Pandemonium episodes came out, Tobe said, hey, let's talk again. I thought it was a great idea, and we decided to just do it as a shared podcast. So you will hear our conversation on Strange Familiars this week. You will also hear it on Strange Brow at whatever point Tobe releases it. You can find Tobe at strangebrow.com. You can find Strange Brow Radio at strangebrowradio.podbean.com. I'll make sure to put these links in the show notes so everybody can find them. Also, check out Tobe's Wood Watchers. He makes these awesome sculptures. He sent me one that's fantastic. I absolutely love it. It's hanging up in my studio right now. He makes kind of uh, wild man faces, Bigfoot and wizardy looking guys and so forth. They're, they're fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So I'll put a link to those as well. If you missed Pandemonium Part 3, that was Strange Familiars Episode 119. That was a patron episode. And to get every episode of Strange Familiars, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. That is the best way to support Strange Familiars and help us continue making content and to get extra content because we do at least one full extra episode of Strange Familiars every month for our patrons. In October, it was Pandemonium Part 3. We did two episodes in September. We might end up doing two episodes in October for our patrons as well. We'll see. There are other levels of support at Patreon as well. You can check it all out. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And while I'm talking about Patreon, I do want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. You make Strange Familiars possible. So thank you for everything you do. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription, like Patreon, we do have a paypal.me link in the show notes. You can make a one-time donation to help us with the show as well. You can find that paypal.me link at strangefamiliars.com in the show notes for any episode. Another way you can help is to make sure to like and subscribe to us wherever you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever, and leave us those nice five-star reviews. That helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. And please share the show on social media. So now, here's the shared podcast with Strange Brow. It's a long conversation, and it involves Bigfoot and poltergeists and how all of this may be related. It all ties into Pandemonium and Tobe sites, the Al Moon sites in Oregon and Washington State. Well, I'm here on the phone with Timothy Renner, and he is the host of Strange Familiars Podcast. How's that for an opening? <laughs> there you go. We got Strange Brow and Strange Familiars, the double strange right. podcast, uh, shared podcast here. Oh, yeah. We're keeping it strange, all right. And <laughs> your, your last episode uh, really proves how strange your world is, and I just put out an episode that kind of proves how strange my world is and that's why we wanted to talk yeah oh yeah definitely i wanted to mention to my listeners if you haven't listened to strange brow episode 37 it's called the al moon lab recordings now tobe has been on before he was on way back in episode 42 i think i called it paranormal bigfoot with strange brow but we've stayed in contact over that time and 
he's just released an episode that shares a whole bunch of audio that he recorded at the Al Moon Lab site. It's essential listening as far as I'm concerned. You should definitely go listen to it. And we're going to be sharing a couple clips here tonight, but uh, you should definitely listen to that. That's Strange Brow, episode 37. Thank you for doing that. That was, uh, I, I absolutely love those episodes. No. And, you know, I'm, what my audience doesn't know, uh, we'll tell them now, is that, uh, yeah, we absolutely have been working behind the scenes on some, not really projects, they're more like experiments. Uh, these are, you know, at-home citizen scientists, you know, in my case has a day job, but is incredibly curious. That's, you know, the one thing I have going for me is my curiosity, really. So that curiosity led us to to do these experiments where we did these mutual gift exchanges of what in our case was objects that were gifted to us from the others. I think that's the agreed upon name that we're both using. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which I love. I think Nicole Kidman would be proud of us. But um, <laughs> yeah, in my case, I uh, sent you uh, some items in the mail and you sent me some items in the mail. And you sent me actually way cooler items, uh, a ton of your books and uh, swag. And <laughs> I appreciate all that. And if, as I mentioned before to the listeners, Timothy, can I call you Tim or do you go by strictly Timothy? Tim is fine. I use okay. Timothy on the books just so I don't get called Timmy, you know? Okay. All right. And my name's actually Toby, but I, everyone calls me Tobe. So Tim sent me a ton of his books and uh, he's an incredible artist. So if you go to Dark Holler Arts, is that how I say it? Yeah, that's yeah. that's the old record label website and mm-hmm. still going and uh, strangefamiliars.com has stuff. Mm-hmm. He does all his own music. He's amazing. I mean, it, so you paint a lot uh, from the perspective of someone who's interested in folk art and the mysticism behind folk tales and man, every inch of it just reaches out in your show. It has that, it, just that really cool enigma that's, that's strange familiars and you know that's just that's important to have when you have a podcast is to have your own little signature tied to it and you and I talk about similar things but we kind of have our own different signature that we try to put on our shows which I guess is our personality but yeah so that's how we met we started exchanging these objects as of like I think it was July the middle of July that we did this and I don't know do you want to start with with that experiment or what are you feeling like um, well, we could get into that first, or I, I'd really like to update my listeners kind of on, on what you've been doing since. So I know you had, you moved from the one site, from the old Al Moon Lab site, the first one, I guess. You call it Al Moon Lab One, right? Right. So now we have, we have two names because it's a series of events. So the Al Moon Lab is in Cottage Grove, Oregon, and those were the years for the most part, is 2012 to 2019. And now we have the Al Moon Altar, and that's in Washington, where I live now in the Olympic Peninsula. And the reason one has the name Lab is because we would do these citizen scientist experiments. And this place here, the altar, is because we have these little tiny wooden altars set up all over the forest. We have a nice little parcel of of woods behind the house where we have activity. So that's where they got the names. Now the activity, it seems to have followed you or was the new site already active before you moved there? 
It was, yeah. So uh, my girlfriend, Aaron Jackson, who's also my sponsor on, on the radio show, if people haven't picked that up by now, Aaron Jackson is also the sponsor of Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. Get your shaman inspired drums, rattles, and smudge sticks. But she, uh, not only a talented artist, you know, that I moved up here with, she also grew up as a long term witness. And so she had a place next door to where we live and she boarded horses. That's where activity really peaked up. But even before that, she, she was a witness and a witness after that with her son. So she grew up with the phenomena and that's how we met. We actually met at uh, a conference regarding Sasquatch and uh, that's uh, how we actually started meeting one another more regularly. Let's put it that way. And <laughs> And so we uh, we we started this friendship, and I lived down in Oregon at the time, and I knew that stuff was going on in Washington because she reminded me of the activity that was happening up here. It didn't seem exactly the same as the type of activity that was happening in Oregon. It was way more aggressive. In fact, we have this debate whether or not Oregon had more male energy going on in Washington the altar site had more of female energy going on. And I know that may sound a little bit weird, but as far as like what was being gifted, it was very in your face down in Oregon, constant daily episodes of the unbelievable. And it didn't matter really who was around, what was going on. It was just going to happen up here at this kind of I don't know. It's like going to like a really quiet little gift store and you find little trinkets and they just kind of, you know, appear like little pretties is what she calls them appear on, you know, all over inside the house and outside the house. And there's also some gamesmanship that goes on here. But yeah, there seems to be a communication between what was going on in Cottage Grove and what is happening here. For example, I make these wooden sculptures. I sent you one. They're chainsaw carvings of faces. And I carve off bits of, in this case, of the beard of a, a wood watcher. That's what they're called. And so when I carve these, there's tons of little burnt edges because I use map gas to basically, you know, bring down uh, the sanding effect of it to level I like. And it also works for colorizing it and shading the cedar wood. And so these little bits of cedar are falling down over my little work area. Well, one of these cedar bits appeared in Cottage Grove. Now, do I know, for example, that <laughs> there, it, it matched exactly off of a wood sculpture? I did know. But it was a burnt piece of cedar sanded with a point that matched several sitting up here in Washington. Now, why is that important? Why do I think that that's even possible? Well, it was laying in the middle of a glyph, okay? It was set in the middle of a glyph. And we get all these stick structures set up against this possessed or haunted uh, metal shop. And we may we'll get into that later. But the idea of something appearing across space and time hundreds of miles away is something that we had to grow kind of used to being possible. Right. And, um, if you listen to my previous episodes, uh, you know, episode one of, of Strange Brow Radio, you'll hear the story about a rock traveling across space and time 35 miles going from the top of a stump to the threshold of a bathroom. And we caught this all on video in real time. 
well, we were a couple of minutes behind the curve because I think this stuff doesn't really go by time. You know, it has its mm-hmm. own schedule. So, yeah, that, that's why I think this is possible. And, man, I'm just so curious about what the real story is regarding the supernatural and its connection to us and the afterlife. And, you know, Sasquatch is mixed up in this whole thing because... I happen to be totally into the woods and they, I, they are too. I, I don't think it limits their availability to communicate with you. If you don't live in the woods, I think they can still access you in certain ways, but you know, we got to start naming these things what they are. And I, it, the only thing you can really do is say that the, the others, whatever they are, uh, don't like to be classified. They don't like to be studied. They don't like to be filmed. And you know, I have a friend and she says the secrets like to keep themselves. Well, that's really it. I mean, these secrets like to keep themselves. That's a brilliant way to put it. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how everything started for me. But then you got my audience here. They don't really know what drove you from being a musician to an artist to really pursuing this. I mean, was it was it your wife having an incident that really kind of sparked the interest with you to get on the radio and start asking more questions or tell people the timeline for you and, and how you even got up to pandemonium? Oh, wow. Well, it was, you know, after writing my first book, I've always been interested in the paranormal and I always, you know, paid attention to in search of when I was a kid and folklore was huge for me. I always loved folklore before I even knew what, it, what folklore was. I was always asking about ghost stories and stuff when I was a kid and I always wanted to go to the places. You know, if someone said, this mill is haunted, there's a ghost there. Why? Well, I wanted to go to the, that mill. You know, I wanted to go there, see it. I didn't like the story wasn't enough. I always wanted to be at that place. Uh, which I suppose I'm still doing now. Just, you know, I, I run recorders when I do it. But the, the first book, you know, I wrote a lot about stuff and I, and I was writing a lot about local legends and I found so much. I found so much and uh, more Bigfoot stuff. Like I've always been interested in the Bigfoot phenomena and had no idea how much there was around me. And that kind of got me fired up. and. I had this idea to do sort of an audio documentary and that's all I wanted to do. I didn't mean to start a podcast really. I wanted to take my first book and make a kind of audio documentary out of it and just give it to another podcast to air. Just, I just wanted to make this thing and I bugged a couple of other podcasts and finally Soraya from where did the road go said, Tim, just, just make your own podcast. <laughs> just, just make your own thing. Just do it yourself. I'll help you. And he did. He helped me get started. He uh, gave me access to his audience. Without Soraya, there would be no strange familiars. So that started that. And I I knew like, okay, I want to do, I want to go to places and and run audio while I'm there. I know I want to do that. I want to do these on-site things. But the question is where to go, you know, because some of these places you just can't get access to and how to do it and so forth. And while all this is happening, and I, I think we did talk about this on your show last time I was on, it's, uh, this is when I was hiking and I found that area of uh, crushed quartz. It was, it was bright white quartz that looked like something had been sitting there and smashing it. And a few of the rocks were kind of stacked into like a little cairn. And I changed it. And this started a ongoing exchange of the, like changing these rocks around, which for months I believed was a human doing it with me until one day it just became very obvious that 
it could, well, it could have been still a human, I guess, but they're very quick and ninja-like if it was a person. Right. Uh, they had to have been watching me from the woods because I changed them and I left and was back within 15 or 20 minutes and a big leaf was under the rock, uh, the cairn I made. And uh, I know it wasn't there before 100%. You know, leaves don't fall under rocks. It's just not what they do. So, you know, I was at that point, I became very, very interested and knew that I, that something was going on, you know, that I was playing a game with something. And at this point, I probably, if you would have asked me then at that point, I would have probably said, oh, it has to be Bigfoot. You know, now I'm a little more like, well, I don't know what it was. I know something's moving rocks around, but I don't know exactly what it was. And uh, so that really got me excited because now, well, it's kind of like what you have. We, we have this interchange going on. You get this feedback, you get feedback, you know, and it's right. something's replying to you. You're, you're having an exchange of something. And that really fired me up. And from there, I just started to look for, you know, other places. And it's like you say with these, a lot of times it's these place names, you know, mm-hmm. if there's a reason why things are called, the, the things are called, uh, Pandemonium is a, a good example. Uh, Hex Hollow is a good example. I tracked sightings of weird stuff in Hex Hollow to long before it was ever called Hex Hollow. It's called Raymire Valley. There was a famous murder associated with it, the, the local uh, powwow tradition. It's kind of like a folk magic tradition. And a guy got murdered. They thought he was a witch in uh, 1928, I believe. And then it started, they called it Hex Hollow after that because it was just, they called it the Hex murder and so forth. But even before that murder ever took place, they were having weird sightings in that valley. So, you know, folklore plays a part in all this. I think folklore was the way of our ancestors had of discussing a lot of this paranormal stuff. They might've used different names, but if you look at it, boy, it seems like they're really describing (laughs) a lot of these same things. Yeah. I mean, let's, I want to go back to pandemonium because as I'm listening to this and I'm hearing pandemonium basically break out like a fever all around you, I'm like, oh my God, here we go. I mean, I just pictured like, you know, the old pioneers scratching their head as like their pickaxe this is a, you know, disappears and saying, oh, this other pandemonium. And, you know, these conversations that I don't know if that's why they named it that, but it seems though that this is why they name some of these places after more often than not, you know, kind of spooky names, not that pandemonium is necessarily spooky, but devil's Creek or, you know, devil's hollow or, you know, goblin shore, all these, you know, crazy names. Basically the white man came along and and settled them in and started making maps and naming, you know, stuff. So yeah, it's it's incredible. And, but okay. So I'm just going to fire away. You, here you are, and I'm going to speak to this too here, investing time and effort into a podcast to look into these, we'll call them mystery schools, mm-hmm. mystery schools of thought. And there's not a lot of women out there doing this. I can maybe think of like five women doing paranormal podcasts that are doing it regularly, weekly, whatever. I don't know if there's way more than that. It seems like most of the time guys are interested in the subject. And I think it goes way deeper than the fact that they just maybe like mysteries or strange, creepy stuff. I think it gets into what you and I were speaking about via text about kind of being masters of their own domain. And your ego is, you know, served by this type of promise that you're going to understand things more than your brother and next to you and your neighbor. And it gets into kind of the Lord of the Rings theory, right? That the ring is this burden and the ring bearer 
has this burden, but these incredible powers here. And we talked about people that are kind of ring bearers right now that are, aren't so nice. And yeah. we, we used other words for that, but it really is true. And I think it's, it's something I'm always cautious about, that this is not abnormal and I am not unique or special to have experienced it. I'm just maybe crazy and curious enough to talk about it. Right. What do you think? I, I think it's a great point. I, stepping back just to what you said about women, you know, I think this goes back into our history where, you know, women who did this stuff were always witches. You know, they were always said to be witches. I think they might, women might have a more of an intuitive understanding of it. Whereas, like you said, men are like, let's solve this. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, yeah, you're totally right. I think there's more of a label, a negative label based upon what you just said towards women. Yeah, and guys can get away with it more. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, like I said, maybe they have an intuitive understanding where we are more like, you know, like you said, let's try to figure this out. I do not try to own it. (laughs) It will own you if you try Mm -hmm. to own it. Certainly. We were talking about people becoming obsessed with it, you know, and it happens in spirit contact and other forms too. I personally, I'm at the place where you know, I believe this is some sort of spirit contact that's going on. And again, I do believe Sasquatch is somehow involved in this. I don't know if, mm-hmm. I don't know if Sasquatch is a spirit entity. Sometimes I think it is. Sometimes I think it, it certainly acts like one in some ways. Uh, you know, like, like as a big folklore guy, if you read mm-hmm. about what they call the earth whites in, in Germanic mythology, the behaviors and the responses I've experienced are, are a heck of a lot like what the folklore reports in those cases but yeah is it the same thing or just something similar i i don't know i really don't know but it is dangerous in a few different ways and it's you can become obsessed and i think another thing you said which is very important is that anyone can experience this stuff and i try to tell people that no one has superpowers (laughs) you can develop those skills yourself you know, no, no one has any kind of powers that you can't develop. Some people have practiced these skills and, and developed them and refined them. And some people are going to be better. It's like, you know, it's like artwork. Some people are going to be more mm-hmm. musicians. Some people are going to just going to be better artists and musicians, no matter how much, you know, other people practice. Some people just have a, a tendency or a skill towards those things. But I don't think anybody really has superpowers. And I think this is there for everyone to access. It's not something that only we can do. You know, and I've seen this before, and I I bet you have too. You know, there's people that have a definitive tone to them about who's in charge and what the message really means, and they're there to interpret it for you. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for a fee, but uh, you get the impression that there is no other way but their way to understand this. And uh, I've seen that happen. Um, I think you have too. Oh, yeah. That leads to, you know, misogyny usually and, and some kind of cult mentality, uh, however soft the cult is. Uh, but, you know, we went up to East Seti Ranch and we did our retreat a month ago and we ended up debunking some stuff from this incredibly hot spot of paranormal activity. Not that I wanted to do that, but, you know, because there's such group think about what's going on there, there's no way I could present that to all of the followers of the Isetti Ranch and what's going on in Mount Adams. I didn't want to do it. I just happened to, you know, feel that this is the most likely thing that has happened here. So yeah, it just 
take that issue and kind of shrink it down into your own example. Like, you know, I, I think I see a, an airplane there and not a UFO, but this person worships UFOs. So therefore it is a freaking UFO. Mm-hmm. So you, you just kind of, you know, Ron Moorhead says it best. That this is, and this, and Wes Germer brought this up too on his show. And he, you know, Ron should be credited for this line. Here is how you get out of an argument with someone who is like what I described. You turn to him like Ron said, you know, you turn to him like Ron does and say, you could be right. You never know. And then just let it lie. It's not going to drive him crazy, but you know, you're not arguing with them. You're just giving them a polite way to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go another direction dealing with this. So that that's what I've done. It certainly helped out quite a bit. And then I'm always just trying to get clarity over an issue rather than agreement. I just want to be clear on what, you know, how someone feels, not necessarily agree with them and have them totally, you know, feel as though they understand how clear my point of view is and not necessarily agree or disagree with me. It's just all about really stating where you are in the moment. And uh, so that those are just some maybe helpful tricks for people that are struggling with this. And I, I still struggle with it too. In fact, even in the podcast I just put out, I, I think I went after uh, the, the apers uh, pretty hard because <laughs> I get fed up and that's, you know, that's probably a derogatory name to them, but people that believe that this is hard science, flesh and blood, you know, relic hominid, I see them as basically like the government hoodwinking the American people over the proof of UFOs. Here we are now with, you know, naval disclosure uh, based upon what happened on the USS Nimitz and a whole lot more than that. And then they're just kind of softly saying, oh, yeah, we've been lying to you the whole time. We know they're out there, but we're in control of the, the message here. Well, the people in control of the message over Sasquatch remind me a lot of that mentality. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to agree totally with that. So when you first started with this, did you, were you approaching it as it's purely a flesh and blood entity? No, man. And it, it, because the frame 352, when Patty turns and looks at the camera, mm-hmm. that was an alien to me, man. That did not look like anything that should <laughs> look at you with that kind of recognition that was inside the animal kingdom. That was inside the paranormal section of the library you know it was right next to time travel and um you know ufos that you find the the bigfoot book so that was my early understanding it's like well you know obviously these things uh exist that that can't be hoaxed footage and but you know how many are there how popular uh, is the actual phenomena i i had no idea about the numbers that were involved as far as how frequent sightings are and uh, you don't have to live in the Pacific Northwest to, to have frequent sightings. What I think is important to talk about and what you and I maybe want to talk about too is working with people that know locations where the others come to visit more often than not. Now, in my case, it was learning that working with habituators or people that were long-term witnesses that had the backyard Bigfoot phenomena had the stories about the supernatural and the paranormal. Yep. And but most of the time they would talk about it. In fact, I had a Navy SEAL, you know, I've told this story before maybe to my audience, but one of the first long-term witnesses I spoke to was 
on SEAL Team 2. His name's Earl Kelso. He lives up Blue River. I hope he's still with us. He's an awesome veteran. And he had disappearing foot track, uh, footprints in the snow. And he said, how to do that? And I, I said, well, I, I, how would I know? But I've heard the story before. And that was, that's a whole section uh, of supernatural paranormal stuff that happened on the Kelso property as well. But, you know, he had no investment in uh, pulling one over me. He had the photographs in hand. He just wanted to know how the heck something evaded through, you know, two feet of snow and there's no sign of any tracks. So right. I, that that's where I think your bread and butter is to get involved with this is don't be a bullshit artist to get on the property of a long-term witness. And they know, first of all, and the Sasquatch, they definitely know an a-hole from a mile away and, and they sniff it out long before you get there. But see, you know, that's super interesting. I, I have heard that before. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. No, I'm just you. saying like, just, I, I don't have a particular example, but people have told me like they will suss out intention. I have a buddy that went to a long-term witness and the long-term witness lived not too far from the Al Moon lab. And the witness said he had a portal in his backyard. Now I never got to meet this guy, but this dude of this friend of mine, this dude went up to this long-term witness and he got on his property and the guy met him at the gate and he, he looked at the investigator, we'll call him. And uh, he said, are you real? That was his first question to this guy when he walked up to him and you know, he didn't know if he was like, well, are you hallucinating and not thinking I'm real? What, where do I go with a question like that? And the guy says, no, no, no. I just want to know if you're authentic. Are you real? And that authenticity, that realness, I think goes a long way in getting the kind of activity that you and I have had. Um, I think it explains why a lot of people that uh, experience the supernatural and the paranormal and don't have a necessarily negative experience with it, get closer to it, understand it better, and then have it kind of follow them. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very, very interesting. It's very, it's just interesting that I've heard that from other people, you know, over time, like that, like they, they, the others, they, they mm -hmm. know your intention. They know your intention and intention has become a very interesting part of all this. I do believe it plays into it to the point where, this was a question I was going to get to with you in a little bit, but uh, it, we might as well get to it here. Is there a co-creative element to this? As far as interacting with it? As far as it needing us to be there to, okay. to manifest in, in some way. <sighs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I think so. You know, the, the, it's so tailor-made for the individual that you have to wonder why. That's why it's, in my opinion, so hard to, to prove to anybody is that when you have a tailor-made suit, it yep. fits you. You, mm -hmm. you, know, you notice all the imperfection and perfections of the suit. And that's what we're talking about here. These long-term witnesses have these tailor-made activities where it's not enough activity or proof or evidence to show your neighbor, but enough to tell them, hey, I'm still around, you bozo. Um, and so there does seem this longing to communicate. Now, 
<laughs> that's only because of the frequency that they've yearned to communicate on our behalf. And it, it, had, it has to have something to do with where you live. I mean, this stuff doesn't seem to happen to, oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it does happen in hotel rooms and it happens in, in businesses. It's not just confined to people that live out in the woods. But if we're just to narrow it down to the others being Sasquatch, I mean, obviously you're going to have more activity when you're in their backyard, which is where our backyards are out in the woods. But when it comes to the UFO phenomena, I mean, you listen to some of the stories that Whitley Strieber will tell. I mean, they, they, they take you and share experiences you with you in the middle of traffic. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a story that unfortunately I deleted accidentally off of my hard drive after I interviewed a guy that um, had missing time in the middle of LA traffic. And it went on and on down the rabbit hole there. Totally compelling story. But uh, yeah, middle of LA traffic, uh, him and his wife were taken. So does it confide itself to just one location? Does it, does it need you to interact with it? Yeah, I think so. There's, there seems to be like this invitation to understand and draw closer. The dangerous part of it is, is that you have to leave behind everything from this physical world in order to do it. Now, does that mean you off yourself? That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying you have to shed your worldly goods, your worldly experiences, and you have to really go 24-7 because that's how they, they want it. Uh, they, the real hardcore supernatural experiences, to really get close to it, you, you have to kind of like lose everything in order to invest it. And I'm, I'm just not willing to do that. Some people have done that before. You know, certainly there's authors that have spoken about that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's nothing that I've done, but I came close to toying with really going super down the rabbit hole. I mean, super deep. And I don't think it's worth doing for everybody. I, it may not be worth doing for any human. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Keel towards the end there was kind of warning people a little bit about that. I remember seeing an interview with him at, uh, I want to say it was one of the early Mothman festivals, one of the first, mm -hmm. you know, one or two that he actually made it to before he died. And uh, someone was kind of asking him, like, how do I, like, you know, get in deep with this stuff? And he just was, why would you want to? <laughs> he, right. he, was, he was very, very much backed off. He's just like, I, I don't see why you would want to do that. Which, uh, you know, sometimes I can definitely see. I, I feel like I've, <laughs> there's a seduction to it, you know, that if you're interested in it at all, uh, you know, I had that synchronicity storm around the, the rabid raccoon attack, which I've, I've talked about on both of our shows, which really kind of pushed me back a little bit. It, it made me take a pause and uh, just because of all the just the weird synchronicities and the number of synchronicities that surrounded it, and because my son was with me when it happened, uh, which I did not like at all, obviously, and uh, it really made me take a step back. And then, but I just find myself being like drawn back into it. Like, what is this? What is this? And then, when you can get these interchanges and these responses and so forth, it's just it's very very seductive. I find. Yeah, I've just learned to keep it light. Um, if I feel like it's not light anymore, chances are that it's probably my fault for making it a heavy, deep mm -hmm. moment. And mm -hmm. I, it's, it's always ego. 
adrift, male ego adrift, when I feel myself getting too damn serious about this whole thing. So we try to keep it light. Here's an example of how we keep it light. <laughs> so I have a little music box. It's just a little bit of Wizard of Oz for everybody. And uh, we, we play a, a music box once in a while out in the woods here because it, it kind of sets the tone for the fact that it's silly to bring a music box out in the woods and, and play it. But it's kind of my reminder, you know, that I really don't have a brain in comparison to, <laughs> to what's going on with the phenomena here. And there's stronger, better, smarter people that invested a whole lot more time and money in this than I have. And I'm just going to scratch the surface of this veil. So, yeah, and I have a great woman in my life and a great family in my life, and they keep me grounded. Now, granted, I say that, and these incredible things that have happened to both of us, myself and Aaron, my girlfriend, it's hard to stay totally grounded, but you certainly have to debunk stuff. And that's the other thing I wanted to talk about, and maybe you can talk about that too, is you kind of expect the weird to happen and you're looking for synchronicity because darn it there is synchronicity and this tailor-made phenomena with you but it's not always and you have to go back and you have to say okay i that's not what this is i i just have to publicly say you know i made a mistake this is not what's going on and uh, and own, own up to it now in our case I told you privately when we did this gift exchange of sorts, uh, you found a spring and you mentioned that you found a, a bed spring attached to a paracord. Mm -hmm. And I, did, I didn't think I'd ever heard that until your podcast, but I went over the text messages again and you absolutely mentioned the fact that you found a, a bed spring attached to this piece of paracord. Now, I thought somehow, some way, I made this little tiny uh, bed spring out of a little piece of wire. And I, <laughs> I don't remember ever hearing you say that. But the fact is, is that I made this little spring and I thought somehow it was connected to the supernatural that I would do that out here in Washington State. So that's, that's an example of bleed over, I think. You, know, you don't know what you've heard subconsciously and what's affected you. So you have to you know, be your own worst critic when it comes to this kind of stuff. I don't know if you have any examples of you jumping to conclusions. Well, I am, I suffer from ready to believe syndrome, I think. <laughs> I think, uh, so I need people like my wife around uh, yeah. to keep me grounded and to say, well, wait a minute, could it have been this? Could it have been that? She's heard the pandemonium story, for instance. And, and to be clear, we were talking about the text message about the spring. That was after I was in pandemonium, but before you made the spring. So I wasn't talking about springs before I was in pandemonium. Well, I must have made that spring right after you said that because the jawbones had already disappeared. And we haven't even got into the fact that we have some disappearing jawbones, but we can talk about that soon. But yeah, I right. think I was subconsciously filtered in a message and then unconsciously made this little wire spring. Mm. See how weird all these conversations get? Yeah. I mean, it's, we, uh, it's so difficult. Yeah. It's so difficult to talk about because it's, it's not a straight line. This is not a linear line. This is a cobweb and these little webs shoot off in every different direction and you have to go, you know, you go down this path and you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have to go back and go down this other path. So you understand this path where I started down before it's, it's very difficult right. to tell this stuff in a kind of linear way. 
But uh, no, so for instance, my wife with pandemonium, she, she will say, how do you think that person got up into your camp and did that? You know, she absolutely believes me when I say I found the spring there and so forth. But she's just, you know, to her, it, it had to be a person, like a person came up into our campsite that night. You know, whereas me, I'm like, I don't know what it was. And I don't think it could have been a person if it was a person. They're very, very brave. But, you know, I can't say it wasn't. I wasn't awake. I didn't see whatever put that spring there. So, you know, it's good to have people like Allison around me. So I think to kind of throw that other perspective in there on a consistent basis. Yeah, it, it's it's a bummer sometimes. <laughs> when you, I mean, sometimes it's just a bummer because it's so tailor-made and you know these moments. You, you were there when it happened. You experienced how quiet it was until that moment. You know how difficult it would be for someone to do that and how brave, uh, you said brave, uh, I believe they'd have to be brave as well to do something like that. It's the consistency of not only the type of gifts, but for example, we were talking about mylar balloons. Yeah. You, you had mentioned that you've found a mylar balloon in the woods and maybe you found more than one mylar balloon in the same area and asked me if that's a thing. And I said, absolutely. Uh, there's an area less than 80 miles from here where it's a total Bigfoot hotspot and there is a nest of mylar balloons that show up consistently below the 10-foot level through a thick tree canopy of dug firs. Now, why would a consistent amount of mylar balloons all show up in the same area of dense canopy near the Mount Rainier Forest? And not only there in a Bigfoot hotspot, but all over the world. And not only mylar balloons, but things that are shiny, toys yeah. and trinkets. Uh, you watch uh, David Polite's uh, Missing 411 movie, the first one, and they find a Rubik's Cube where a child disappeared. That Rubik's Cube, I don't think, was there when the search party went there. There's, there's this consistency of objects and things that are interesting showing up in hot spots where the others are. And I think you're absolutely right. But if you told somebody you found a mylar balloon, they'd be like, well, they got to land somewhere, dude. I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> right? Well, that's when, and this is on Pandemonium 3, which is a, 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 a patron episode, but you can hear Chad. I stop him and I say, wait a minute. Is that a mylar balloon? And he goes, yeah, why? You know, because he's, he's new to all this stuff. You know, he hasn't read all the literature and so forth. I say to him, take a picture of that. I'll tell you in a minute. And, you know, he takes a photograph of it. And then I go into this like, hey, I know this sounds batty, but, you know, Bigfoot people are saying they find these mylar balloons around in these hot spots. And here's a mylar balloon in the woods. I believe this was, this was at the base of a tree. You know, yeah, could it have blown there or, or in some way gotten there? Yeah, it could have. But where it showed up is certainly interesting. Uh, we had a mylar balloon in the house that I got for Erin for, I believe, her birthday. And um, it had lost its helium, and it was time to get rid of this giant heart balloon, I think it was, something to that effect, and she threw it away. And um, a couple days later, I think it was less than a week, we go on a walk on our property. And for some reason, I had this thought in my head, look for a mylar balloon out here. And so, so, 
I'm uncomfortable saying that that was well uncomfortable. Is that the right word? No, it's not, it's not the right word. I guess I doubted the fact that that was anything other than my imagination saying, hey, look for a mylar balloon. I don't know what it was except my imagination. But I had that thought and Aaron turns around and says, oh my God, is that a mylar balloon? Huh. And it's, hang, it's hanging off of a, a tree below a, you know, a thick canopy about 15 feet off of one of our trails. And it is uh, a balloon that hasn't been cut or ripped through the tree canopy. And an, it had some kind of congratulatory happy birthday message on it. <laughs> and there it was. So, you know, it's those kind of moments uh, where you scratch your head and say, what the heck? But I would never even think to think this way had it not been all of the other complete craziness that happened in Cottage Grove, Oregon and happens up here. Right. So right. Once, once it happens, it's hard to filter out what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you the story about the psychic and me and the Bigfoot energy and the acorns? Did I tell you that no, story? No, no. Uh, this is, a, I've told it on Strange Familiars, but I, I, your audience may enjoy this. I went, I was invited to a, uh, there's a local ghost hunting group and they invited me to come out. They were researching the cemetery. Now this cemetery is in the middle of a town. This is not a rural area in any way. It's a, in the middle of a busy part of town. And uh, I, they wanted me to give a little talk and I just gave a little talk and then uh, they were, I was signing books and stuff. And then at some point the main guy from the group came up to me and said, Hey, our psychics out back and he's doing a session out there. If, if you want to go, you know, observe that I'll watch your books for you. I was like, yeah, that, that sounds interesting. I'll go do that. He's out there and he's, uh, he was sitting on a grave kind of meditating and he was, he was channeling, you know, something and I'm nothing if not a, a, a little mischievous maybe, but not, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm negative, but I was like, I'm, I'm willing to play around with this stuff. So I thought like, I wonder what happens. If, yeah, I'm going to stand here and I'm just going to concentrate all my energy on, on manifesting a Bigfoot and maybe I'll get a scream. Maybe we'll get something, you know, let's see what happens. Let's, you know, let's just play with this and see what happens. And I, so he's sitting there meditating and I'm just standing there just concentrating all my energy, just, just, you know, just trying to just like summon a Bigfoot essentially. And after a few minutes, he opens his eyes and he looks right at me. So I was standing off to the side, you know, maybe 20 yards from him. He tur- he opens his eyes, he turns, looks right at me and he says, your aura right now is absolutely huge. So, so this is after I'm trying to manifest the, you know, right, right, right. The, the Bigfoot energy. So then, you know, we're talking a little bit and he, he was doing like some Reiki on a woman and stuff. And we're, we're just having a nice conversation. And there was this clump of leaves that, that was there and something said, and again, it, it's, it's not like I heard a voice, but something told me there's something under those leaves for you, you know, so you need to pick that up and look. So I picked it up. And I'm, I'm looking around and now it's getting pretty dark. So I'm, I'm kind of like digging around. I think I had my cell phone light I was using to kind of look under there. And the psychic walks up. He's like, it's like, what is, what is that? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. I just, there's something here. There's something here. And I picked up a little acorn. Okay. Not, you know, an acorn on the ground, big deal. But we were done out there and we turned and walked and there's a, there's a house on the cemetery ground. And I walked directly from finding that acorn. I put it in my pocket I walked around the corner and into the kitchen of this house. And the psychic is right behind me. And on the kitchen floor, 
inside the house is a huge acorn <laughs> just sitting there. I bent over, I picked it up, I turned around and his eyes got so big. I said, See that I said, I said, I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but you know, it's the acorn inside the house. <laughs> there's something about acorns because there is a moment here that I related to you about a magic acorn as well. And if you look at some of these, you know, other, uh, gods, in particular, the I believe it's Cernunus, uh, an acorn is present on this god in between his crown. That's a whole other story. It, it's probably too long to tell here right now, but there's something about acorns. I don't know what it is. I We would get filberts or hazelnuts down in Cottage Grove set in weird spots, but up here, it's magic acorns periodically. Well, only on one occasion, but uh, yeah, I, I sympathize with that moment. <laughs> it was just one, it was just completely bizarre and I was so happy the psychic was walking right behind me because I just picked it up and I just said this is like this kind of stuff happens I don't know I don't he's, he's like you know because he's like what's that about I'm like I don't know what it's about I just you know there there was you know your your acorn moment after but I, I got a big kick out of him just opening yeah. his eyes and saying your aura is huge right now I was like that's fantastic now, was the acorn set in the middle of the floor? Was it set on the threshold of a doorway? How was it? How Dead was it in the middle of the kitchen floor. Yeah. There was no missing it. There was no missing it. And it was a huge one. The one I found outside was little. And this one was like like quite a large acorn. It was, there was no missing it. And that kind of smacks of uh, just as far as like this uh, weird behavior of stacking things in order or kind of putting them in weird, obvious places is, you know, tantamount to poltergeist activity where they would, you know, stack chairs up in a neat row or Mm -hmm. um, Sasquatch has that, if we're calling this Sasquatch activity, not necessarily, but, you know, if you watch any show on Bigfoot long-term, for example, Finding Bigfoot, they would go to these eyewitnesses place and they would describe things like chicken heads all stacked in a row or, uh, you know, seven mice all wrapped up in leaves and uh, set on people's doorsteps all in a row or putting things right dead center in the middle of a doorway. So poltergeist meets Bigfoot meets all this other stuff. There seems to be a real attention to detail and that gets into Oh, what's his name? The guy that wrote the autism theory. Yeah, I was just going to bring him up. Uh, Chris, yeah. Chris, Noel, Christopher Noel, 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 or yeah. Noel. Yeah, yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah, right. And he speaks of such things, but um, that—that's what we're familiar with—is this real attention to detail to say, oh, it's, this is the middle of the doorway exactly, and they can't miss this. You know, right? So. Well, in your last episode, you described that silly putty egg that was buried. Mm-hmm. And then every stone, so the, here's the two options. Either something unburied it and placed every stone back in exactly. the exact exactly. position it, it was in. Yeah. Or something reached through the ground and left a fingerprint. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's crazy. Like, right? It gets so, into magic and quantum physics. Science meets magic real quick. That's mm-hmm. why if you ever get a chance to interview Henry Franzoni, Uh, who's this Native American environmental scientist from Washington who really was my first mentor in understanding that there was magic involved with this phenomena. He talks about the, you know, the idea that when these things manifest, they're in a certain vibrational state and they're able to reach through matter. That's what explains a lot of these pops, cracks, hits. Uh, We would get those 
constantly. And I spoke about that in that last episode. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are big. I don't know if wood knocks are necessarily monkeys, monkey men hitting trees right. with wood. They're, set, they're definitely the sound of wood expanding and popping. But for example, in one of the audio files that we're going to play tonight, it's the fence stomp crack one. There is no prelude to this, these giant footsteps coming up to the parabolic microphone. The only prelude to it is this pop. Mm-hmm. And out of this pop erupt a single bounding footstep and a vocal. And then it fades off naturally into the distance. But we would get that time and time again. We get this at the house, right? Like five minutes, maybe even three minutes before I wake up sometime, before my alarm goes off at three in the morning or four in the morning, we'll get a pop or a snap or what some people would call a slap on the house. And it's the weird timing of it all. Like it knows that my alarm is going to go off, right? And and it and it's going to pop through uh, or slap the house beforehand. That's why when you say you know this is a cobweb instead of a straight line, it just that's such a perfect way to put it. And um, we have to. What I always told my audience at Strange Brow is that to really understand the weirdness of it all, you have to forget what you've learned about time. And you have to reorganize the fact that these events have already happened in their world and they're appreciating it totally different. And that gets into Ron Moorhead's neck of the woods and Aquani Laparitis and, and all these other forefathers of, of understanding the, the paranormal Sasquatch phenomena. But it's hard to communicate these ideas to people that are out looking for a giant, you know, silverback gorilla. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other point that I think is, is very important that you point out, and I've pointed this out before, it wasn't an original concept to me. I think I heard Wes say it and picked up on it as absolutely true when I heard him say it, is if and when someone is, they're a hunter and they see one walk by them in the woods and they're driving down the street and they get a roadside crossing or something. Mm-hmm. I do not blame these, these people for us for a second for thinking it's just a natural animal because to them, that's all they saw. They saw something physical and solid walk by them or standing by the side of the road or whatever it was. But as you pointed out, when you get people with these repeat visits, they're coming on their property, they have an opportunity to be around them on a regular basis, then you, I don't, I don't want to say always, but then you very often get this other weird phenomenon with it to the point where when I, when I talk to witnesses like that, they're surprised that I'm not surprised when they say, oh, my house is haunted also. You, you right. know, it's like, of course it is. Yeah, that goes right along with it. Absolutely. You know? oh, oh, yeah, 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 totally. It's these repeat witnesses that will bring up the weird stuff and say, like, yeah, this other weird stuff is happening. You know, I'm seeing these weird lights all the time. I'm seeing this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's a very, very important point because – like I said, if it's just a hunter in the woods who sees one walk by, I don't blame them for thinking they're, they're natural. I don't blame them for a second. But, right. uh, you, you know, so much of the other stories point to there being something more or something different about them. I'm trying to find the clip here. There's an interview I did. I spoke earlier about Earl Kelso and the disappearing tracks in the snow. I got access to a place in Vida, Oregon, and I met the neighbors. I asked the neighbors 
whether or not they knew Earl. And they said, no, we don't. They're about five houses down from him. There was a highway in front of their house and a large mountain that led to the Cascade Mountains behind them. And I spoke to, uh, well, the story is going a little bit backwards right now. I actually met Earl first, I'm sorry, met these witnesses first and then met Earl afterwards. So I introduced myself to Earl because of this woman named Mary and Chad. And they had Bigfoot activity. And that's why I went to introduce myself to Earl to see if I could get access to the mountain. So Mary and Chad were long-term witnesses and they would have activity in the back of uh, their house on the hillside there. And Chad liked to smoke a lot of weed and drink a lot of booze and raise pit bulls. And um, it was driving him nuts. But he's this big, you know, alpha male that's not going to take no S from anybody. Meanwhile, the pit bulls are cowering in their cages when the sun goes down and Chad starts popping off shots towards something racing back and forth in the woods. And Mary is a long-term witness as a child. So she knows this phenomenon exists. She had her sighting on the coast in Oregon. She actually saw one pleasure himself in the woods. So she was quite traumatized by that experience. Now, I mention that because it makes the story way more compelling that a husband and wife would approach you at a pizza parlor and know what you're doing at this pizza parlor, in my case, having a Bigfoot meeting, and then in a straight face, tell me the story that she saw a Sasquatch as a little girl pleasuring himself. And the reason she told me that is because she had a house full of kids and she didn't want them to ever see anything that crazy. Here they have Bigfoot activity, right? Right, mm-hmm. right down the street from this pizza parlor. The reason I mention this is because Mary pulled me aside and said, I have lights coming into my bedroom at night. And I said, okay, what kind of lights, Mary? And she's like, well, they're little white lights that they go through the window. They don't need the window to be open. They go through the wall. They fly around our house. And then I'll look out the window and I'll see a Sasquatch sitting kind of Indian style watching up at the bay window where the kids sleep. So she's completely freaked out by the fact that, uh, you know, her kids are going to see a Bigfoot do the unthinkable. Right. Uh, and this is where I think this is probably 2010, 2009. And this is really where the rails went off as far as the supernatural. When I really first experienced it was out at Mary and Chad's house. And we saw this giant organic light display happen up in the, uh, well, it was an old helopad that went defunct up in the woods there that we had access to. So we stayed up all night, waited for sign to happen And I knew that there was sign up on the hill. I knew that these people weren't telling me BS because I had my own share of experiences on my way up to the, to the campsite over a period of months. My tent was stuck up in a tree. It was moved 35 feet from where I'd put it on the helipad and put uh, about eight feet up and 30 feet away in a tree about a half hour after I put it there. (laughs) And then um, we're sitting at the top of this hillside at 1130 at night watching the Cascade and McKenzie River and the full moon. And uh, we see this 50 foot, at least this 50 foot arc welder light explode about 200 feet in front of us in front of the tree line and stair step through the woods. And each time it exploded without a sound, it was this piercing white angelic light that you could look straight into. And it was just absolutely amazing. One of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen at that point. And that 
is when things really, I started to pay attention more, that these things are possible. And I forget where I was going with this whole thing, but it it points to the fact that long-term witnesses, if you can get access to someone that has activity and befriend them in an authentic way and learn from them instead of going in saying, well, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on here. It's just not the right approach for meeting anybody over any issue. Chances are that they know a whole lot more than you because they're living with it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me too how they tiptoe up to it because, you know, if I'm called, so I'm called there, say, because I'm the Bigfoot guy. I'm the local guy for Bigfoot, right? So they they call, they might contact Lon from Phantoms and Monsters, and he like he'll he'll have me go out and investigate, or they might find me because of my books, or however they find me, they find me and say, you know, I saw Bigfoot. I want to talk to you about it, or you know, I, I go out and I meet them on their property. And they ease up to the weird stuff because I don't know whether I don't think most people have allowed themselves to think it's more than, than a natural animal, even though there's all this other weird stuff going on. They don't connect it. In other words, it will, they will tell all the Bigfoot stories that sound like, you know, make it sound like it's a natural animal. And then they'll get to the weird lights or they'll get to the haunting or very rarely will I have to say, so is your house haunted or is there, is there, do you see weird lights or anything like that? Every now and then I'll say that. And almost always the answer is yes. Almost always. If it's a repeat witness one recently, again, she, and, and she was talking like, you know, again, like they're, they're natural creatures and where do they live? And, you know, where they must be staying in this part of the woods and they must be eating this and eating that. And I'm just, okay. You know, like I'm, I'm not arguing with her or anything. I'm just, you know, tell me your stories. And then uh, towards the end of the day, I said, so what else happens? You get, you get weird lights around here? Oh, yeah, 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 we get weird lights. And I said, uh, any haunted houses? And she said, well, my house is haunted. And then her neighbor who was talking to me all day about Bigfoot stuff, he'd had several encounters. He's like, oh, yeah, my house is haunted too. And it's just, of course, of course, you know, <laughs> of course. I don't tell them, you know, I, sometimes I tell them I think it's all related and that's about as far as I'll go. I don't tell them I think it's completely connected, you know, which is the, the point where I am now. But uh, I do say, well, you know, I think all this stuff is, is somehow related. But uh, again and again, I run into this and it, it's not surprising. It's always interesting. It's always exciting, but it's, it's not surprising anymore. I'm just, I'm just waiting for the weird light stories. Well, don't you think it's going to take a big name in uh, the community to really talk about their own personal experience. I mean, we need someone who has a lot of camera time, who's, you know, in all the speaker circuits to finally give a presentation on the connective tissue of all this stuff. And that just hasn't happened yet because somehow, some way they feel as though they're talking about something way less weird than that. But as a reminder to the general public, you, you know, these people are chasing fairy tales and they might as well, be out looking for, well, it's hard for me to say anything (laughs) isn't real anymore. I almost said looking for leprechauns, but now I'm like, well, you know, (laughs) there are these stories about little people. So it might might turn out to eat some crow on that one. But yeah, I I just think that it's going to take one of these bigger names to talk about something publicly like at, you know, uh, one of these conferences. Certainly the UFO people are way way and this is something tom powell mentioned um and if you haven't had tom on your show or 
advertised any of Tom's work. Um, Tom Powell's been talking about this for years, that groups like MUFON are light years away from us as far as organization and being able to talk about these, these other phenomena phenomena is being connected. Whitley Strieber talked about uh, ghosts being connected to the UFO phenomena. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe talks about Bigfoot being connected to the UFO phenomena. Uh, Skinwalker Ranch, George Knapp, all this stuff with Jeremy Corbell doing the documentary about Skinwalker Ranch. They talk specifically about government funding, you know, over $20 million being siphoned to uh, Bigelow Industries and studying the Skinwalker Ranch. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence that they had exactly what's going on at that ranch on larger doses than we did. But, you know, we would call the Al Moon Lab a skin twin because so much of the activity mimicked what they were able to study. I mean, they were able to study it in a, in a way that, that very few people are able to study it because they threw so much money and time at it. But you don't get you know, Harry Reid to siphon $22 million towards something unless he's connected to something authentic. Uh, And a lot of reasons that program was, I guess, halted in some degree was based upon, and if you watch the Skinwalker Ranch documentary and George Knapp talks about this, is that there were religious elements within the Pentagon that said that what people were investigating was demonic and that um, they didn't want that money allocated towards the devil's work, something to that degree. Now, they could be right. I, I, who am I to say? You know, this could be a giant cat and mouse game, right? I, I tend to think not uh, because my life has reaped only benefits, and I'm more happy now than I've ever been because I'm doing exactly what I love. And uh, you and I spoke about that too. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I feel like I didn't find myself till I was in my thirties, quite honestly. You know, I had, uh, some of that's completely, you know, normal run of the mill family issues and stuff that, uh, maybe not normal, but, but, uh, normal within the scope of, you know, not paranormal stuff. And, uh, some of it is just, uh, you know, finding a sort of home, you know, for myself and, and where I want to be and, and what I want to do. And being very comfortable with this stuff. I'm very comfortable about talking about this stuff to the point where I'll, I'll walk up to strangers sometimes. And just, you know, if, if I'm meeting somebody on a trail, say, for instance, and, and we get to talking, it won't be long before I'll, I'll mention that I'm into weird stuff and ask them if they've experienced anything strange. You know, so it's, you know, I've found, I've found my home, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to have someone that has something in common with me and not feel either threatened by, you know, the, the kind of information that I'm presenting and vice versa. I'm not threatened by this at all, but there's a lot of people that are threatened by what you and I are talking about. And the best way to deal with it is to just absolutely go silent on it and not acknowledge its existence. And I, I get that to a degree, but we live in a, a new time now where disclosure is present. We no longer get the X-Files music <laughs> when a, you know, a UFO segment comes up on the nightly lose. Uh, generally, that was the case before, but now I think this Area 51 event actually is going to be a, a yearly thing 
out in, the, in Nevada. And I think that's probably going to turn into more and more transparency. I don't know if you saw the footage of people actually walking up to the Area 51 gate with local law enforcement and Area 51 employees waiting with smiles on their face for the public to come up. Like they, they've been waiting years, you know, <laughs> to be able to talk about this in some degree. And people want to share ideas. That's, that's our natural way to do it. It's not, not compartmentalizing things like the government does. And you can see how frustrated uh, Bob Lazar is regarding Area 51. He talks about how he thinks uh, constantly to this day about still being at S4 looking at back engineering technology from alien craft and how frustrating it is to no longer be a part of it. But he went on to say that it was the compartmentalization of not being able to work with other people and exchange ideas about what's going on there and how much of a crime it is to keep this, you know, away from humanity. And I feel that I think it is a crime to humanity. I think we deserve to know uh, exactly what's going on here without the the algorithms pointing to social collapse. What's your thoughts? My thought is part of the, I'm not even sure how to phrase it, part, part of the government's deal with this, part of their muddying the waters constantly is because I truly believe they don't have all the answers. I don't believe there's a magical security clearance that you get and then you know everything. I don't believe that at all. I believe they're very curious in this stu- in, into the phenomena in general. And they would like us to believe they know a lot more than we do. And the reality may be that they know different things than we do, but not more. And I don't think they have all the answers. That's just my gut feeling. My, my gut feeling is I don't trust the government and I don't, I don't trust them to ever disclose anything but it's not because they have the answers and won't. It's because they need us to think that they have the answers. It's beneficial for them to always have the populace thinking that the government knows everything. We're safe. They know. They know what's going on. It's not beneficial for them to come out and say, we don't know what Bigfoot is. We, we will admit it exists. We have researched it. We, we don't know what UFOs are. We'll admit they exist. We have no clue. Although apparently they did that with that Tic Tac video. <laughs> but I think... Right, right. I think overall, I think the, the general uh, push has been, we'll let everyone think that we know all the answers so they're not panicked. Because part of the worry is if they say we don't know and then people start going, well, if you don't know who does and maybe there's more to life than you know, everything here, maybe, maybe, and not to get political, I don't want to get too political, but maybe people start saying, mm, the system really doesn't work for me, you know, and there's deeper, deeper issues there. Um, again, I've purposefully avoided politics on Strange Familiars because I know I'm just going to anger, you know, at least 50% of my audience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's different levels of transparency. Ours is one version of transparency now before it was mocked, made fun of. And now there's uh, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel here somewhat with what's going on with the, the Nimitz and the Tic Tac UFO. Yeah, and, 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 and also I, I hope like I'm wrong with all this. It'd be awesome to get some answers. It'd be awesome to get like some form of disclosure. That would be disclosure. Mm-hmm. Brother. That would be amazing. That'd be great. You know, uh, it's just like I say, if at some point someone rolls a Bigfoot body into a lab, I'm willing to at that point 
eat crow and say, I guess I was wrong about all this weird stuff, guys. I guess it's just an animal, but I'm not holding my breath for that. <laughs> yeah, man, I don't know. I, I feel uh, so c- content with my working theory and experiences that that will never happen. That yeah. it, brings, it brings me joy for the fact that the mystery wants to keep itself and has the power to do it. And I mm-hmm. think that the, the UFO phenomena and the afterlife phenomena has the power to do it because they understand time differently. But I, I will take issue with the fact that w- what you said earlier, that nobody really knows what's going on. I think there probably are some uh, really talented magicians out there masquerading as, you know, CEOs or, you know, uh, this elusive 1% that are incredibly close to this phenomena. Now, do they have to do certain biddings in order to alter their consciousness to experience these things and and draw close to them? Uh, I think so. I think they go through tremendous links to find out how all this stuff works. And, you know, as you start looking into again, Tolkien and um, some of the things that he, he wrote about in, in not only Lord of the Rings, but uh, the rest of the trilogy there. There's so much within just that fairy tale that smacks true of the human condition approaching this stuff here. And it talks about these grand wizards that, that know these secret things and they share information. I think that that it works that way to some level. Um, as unbelievable as that may sound, look how unbelievable the act of it is already that it exists. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm more conspiratorial when it comes to that. But um, as far as naming names, who's ever going to be able to do that? So, yeah, I don't know. Now, I'm going to say something regarding your theory, and I'm not, I, I don't mean this in a silly way. You could be right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yes. Well done. Well done. All right. <laughs> That's no, I mean, but I mean that quite literally. You, you yeah. could be right. I, I absolutely mean that. I'm not right. being dismissive in any way. Well, uh, and I, I mean, I know people that get so deep down the rabbit hole with conspiracies and theories on what really is going on behind the curtain, you know, and they're no longer happy because everything has an angle to it and it's a dark angle. Because if you feel like you're constantly being slighted by a puppet master, and this is like this whole theory that we're somehow part of this uh, program, this matrix that we're living in a in a program, basically, like um, mm-hmm. Elon Musk says, I think that's a really dark way to look at life. It, oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I've I heard you say that you don't want to know your future. Well, that's a form of having your future already dictated to you by this puppet master. I don't want to live that way. You know, if it came. Well, maybe this is a, uh, we'll throw this question out here. What if you were given the opportunity and you didn't have a family, there was really nothing that you'd have to leave behind to actually know the deepest secrets of the universe? Would you do it? Wow. I mean, it gets into the red pill, the blue pill. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, Could your mind take it? Right. Well, yeah. If like, if I knew it was the last day of my life, you know what I mean? Like if I'm on my deathbed, I knew it was the last day of my life. Give me the pill. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If I have more life left to live. No, no. Because I think, I think you might go insane. You might be right about that. And we see this within individuals involved at looking into these 
mysteries, these mystery schools, some of them literally go insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they, they're found wandering in hotel rooms with, you know, uh, toilet paper boxes on their feet. And we, we have to look at history to appreciate the fact that they had approached this uh, as carefully as possible in some ways, and yet they still got too, too close to the ring. And so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, it happens, like you're saying, kind of in the, the Bigfoot world. It happens in the occult world. Uh, there's not a lot of happy stories in the occult world. And I, I know, you know, a lot of my friends are very, very involved and in, in very deep into modern Western occultism. And uh, it's just not littered with happy stories. If you look at, you know, Aleister Crowley, uh, you know, he died poor and not in a great condition. Austin Spare, who's arguably the most accomplished occultist, he was, you know, by all accounts, absolutely the real deal through and through. He died completely penniless and lived in squalor. You know, it, it's just this stuff can go sideways. You know, it can go sideways on you. And that's what that's what I always kind of warn people. Like, yeah, it can go sideways. And I know some people who pretty much declared themselves, you know, master wizards and they had figured it all out and who, they were going to game this system and that system to their benefit using magic. And it, it all went sideways on them. It can go sideways, you know, and, and there's usually right. reasons why. And like you said, it's usually ego involved with it. When, when I talk about the dark stuff that happened to me in Hex Hollow with the raccoon and all that, I know I broke the rules. Like the rules are explicit in folklore and what to do. I asked for something. I didn't take it. I, I really, I hurt somebody's feelings, essentially. Mm-hmm. I hurt the other's feelings. I, I specifically asked for something. I was giving something within 10 minutes of asking for it. In this case, I asked for a skull. It was the head of a groundhog that was freshly decapitated and I, it was kind of gross. I didn't want to take it. And that's, I broke the rules. I asked for something. I didn't take it. Right. I, I completely ignored it. And I got, a, quite honestly, I got a little freaked out by it. And uh, that is a no-no. In folklore, that's a no-no. And I, that's, I broke the rules. So that's me. I did that. I don't read that as the phenomenon turning on me. I read that as me breaking the rules. Like that was my mistake. I made a mistake and I, I got mm-hmm. my butt smacked for it. You know, but did you ever hear the interview I did with Mark Henyon, the Satanist? I don't know if you, I did not. Okay. No. So I had the chance to sit down with a college professor from the university of Oregon named Mark Henyon and him and his son met me at a pizza parlor and people have a chance to go back and re-listen to that one might help them understand this a little bit, but here you have a highly educated guy who's invested um, his philosophy into the philosophy of the Church of Satan, and he knows exactly why he's a Satanist. He knows exactly what a real Satanist is and what they're not. What makes Mark different and an outcast to the Church of Satan is the fact that he believes in a creator, and that's not okay when when you're Satanist, which is pretty weird, right? Because you would think that they would believe in the negative in their opinion, right? Which would be a creator, the light. Um, but that's not the way Satanism works. And if you look at, at this episode, you'll hear his point of view. There, there came a point where Mark went out into a cornfield to cast a spell or to do some kind of incantation work. And in their opinion, they were going to do a noble spell. They're going to bring forth something that was to benefit not just them, but to benefit, you know, the world. Instead, they had something 
completely horrific happened to them and approached them through the cornfield. And it scared Mark so bad that he was tricked that he had to rethink the fact that maybe he's being hoodwinked in other ways, you know, throughout his philosophy. So Mm -hmm. you could see the point of transition of where ego was there. Then he got his butt smacked and he's like, okay, I don't think I broke any rules, but yet I opened a doorway here and I don't know exactly what's passing through this doorway here. So it's it's a fascinating interview. It's it's one of the hardest ones I've ever done because I don't know if you've ever sat down with someone who's just miles above you intellectually and uh, just, you know, their IQ is just flying right out the window compared to you. That scared me. Uh, the fact I wouldn't be able to keep up with the guy. And, um, but it's, it's incredibly uncomfortable for the audience to hear about somebody that uh, invests their intellect, their, their vast intellect into a counter philosophy that is perceived to be completely dark. But it's worth listening to because I think it kind of changes your perspective on who people are and how they change and where they come from and how they get there. And uh, you don't have to sell out your intellect to invest in the supernatural, I guess, is the point. Uh, it's, you, you were brought up, I believe, Catholic, right? Yes, yes. Okay, and I was brought up Protestant. And, uh, you know, within those two religions, there is the discipline of uh, apologetics. You're defending, mm-hmm. defending the faith, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, not apologizing to anybody, but you've learned basically to intellectualize the fact that there is a creator and you can defend your faith through this discipline of apologetics. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was a guy that I looked up to at the time that was tremendous at defending the faith of Protestantism. And so the point is, is that you, if you invest your time towards your worldview and you focus all your time and energy and you absolutely believe what you believe to be really real and you can do that and live happily um, then I think that you've kind of found your own personal answer. That, to me, wasn't my overall answer, was investing in one particular spiritual point of view. There seems to be all this other cobweb stuff going on, and I've intellectualized. I don't want to say I've evolved because I'm sick of people saying they've constantly evolved, <laughs> but I feel like I've intellectualized myself turning a corner and saying, okay, there's more to this. So things are way more complex and I still don't have to sell out you know, my intellect to appreciate it. I think some of the world thinks that you and I have bypassed evidence and uh, proof because we've gotten lazy and said, well, just because it's weird, just because it doesn't have an explanation, we, we have called it a ghost. That's not what we're saying here. We've, we've walked away with a fair amount of physical proof, you know, beyond just the stories here. And I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Well, I'm, very careful about what I say it is. You know, for me specifically, unless I saw a big hairy thing turning that spring onto that paracord in our campsite, I wasn't going to say it's Bigfoot. I, I say something came in and I said, I heard wood knocks, but you know, before we found it and I recorded wood knocks before we found it. This is like other Bigfoot activity, but I'm, I'm not going to say it's Bigfoot. I don't know what it was, you know, but it was there, you know, it was very much there. I, 
I have trouble arguing with skeptics anymore because if you're going to say, I can't tell you it wasn't people. If, if you want to tell me that was people that did that, I can't prove it wasn't, you know, I, I, I don't have film, uh, which is something we should talk about also about how, <laughs> if I would have set up cameras, I don't think that spring would have been there. Um, but, uh, I don't know how to talk to people about this who haven't experienced it in some way. I'm willing to talk to anybody, you know what I mean? But if they're not willing to accept my word that, that no, you have to understand those rocks changed in 15 minutes, you know, from the time I left and the time I was there and there was nobody else in the park. If you're not willing to accept my word on that, I can't talk to you about it because it's not going to let us get the film proof. I don't think it's going to, it's whatever this is, it's not going to let us do that. So I can't show it to you on camera. I can't show you those rocks changing on camera. I can't show you that spring being twisted in on camera. I can only tell you it happened. I can play you audio around it <laughs> for some reason. For some <laughs> reason I can play you audio, but I can't show you video. And it's almost as if, I don't want to say you have to have it happen because a lot of people don't have it happen and they are open to it and they, you know, they do experience it through our stories, you know, whether we're telling them on, on our podcasts or, or in our books and, they trust that we are documenting it in the best way that we can, I think. But if someone's just going to be a hard skeptic on it, I don't know how to talk to them sometimes. I don't know how to prove to you that something very, very strange went on, that a storm of coincidences is more than, right. than a storm right. of coincidences. You know? And why do they get to set the bar about how this is? I mean, why, why are they the gatekeepers? We're the gatekeepers to the truth. That's That's the part that's really interesting is that, uh, we're closer and we're uh, more, you know, deep towards the answer here than they are because we're not denying anything. They, they've constantly denied this for, you know, forever as far as I'm concerned. And it, it, why is film the bar to right. be set as the ultimate bit of proof to the... Look at they're doing now a deep fakes. I mean, if you haven't seen the, what they're doing with face manipulation, I think there's a new movie coming out with Robert De Niro where uh, they put Robert De Niro back at the age of like 35. And you can't tell the difference uh, mm -hmm. between, you know, Robert De Niro now and age 35. So digital manipulation is there. But the fact is, is that if you think... And I still toy with this, man. I mean, I still toy with the fact that, oh, I, if I could get some really good, you know, audio or FLIR footage of a Bigfoot, that might change the game. I still toy with it because it'd be so cool to have that part of the whole photo family album of this mystery. And that's, that's how I honestly try to look at it. But the ego is a funny thing, man. It sneaks in. And this is a giant scavenger hunt. And people are cutting people's throats to, you know, <laughs> to get to the end of the race before anybody else. And um, I still find myself flirting with, with ego uh, as it pertains to, to winding up with something cool. Even the most, you know, ardent, earthy, woo-woo, flute-playing person out there that obsesses over the fact that these are forest people and obsesses over the fact that they know the answer is, you know, heart and love and light, they still deal with it all the time. Because I see these people, these women and men at these conferences, and there's such know-it-alls, man. They just think that they've got it all licked and that, uh, you know, they're going to be the ones that uh, subtly bring it forward in this new, new age type of way. So, 
it's just as prevalent over here as it is over there. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's just the heart. It's the human condition. Well, one thing that does give me hope is, uh, and I hope he's right. So Josh Cutchin, the guy I'm writing my new book with, he keeps saying again and again that materialism is losing as a, as a whole we're it's going out and people are going to be much more open to, you know, a non-materialist way of looking at the world. So that gives me hope. I hope he's right. I, I think it's a, it's a really hard battle. I mean, a, a great example is the, the nuts and bolts UFO versus the something else. I mean that, or e- even in the Bigfoot world, you know, the, the, the big hairy ape in the woods versus something else it has such a hold in people because of this, you know, this Newtonian way of thinking mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's really hard to break. But I mean, Josh is a super smart guy. If he really feels like materialism's on its way out, uh, I hope he's right. I really do. Yeah. I hope he's right about the, the materialism ending. Um, you know, I'd live right outside of uh, Seattle, Washington and work there occasionally. And it's anything, but, uh, you know, disappearing in the in the hearts of big cities. And I, I worry about that theory. I guess, you know, I would probably say Josh Hutchins could be right when it comes to that. But I, I worry about the exact opposite, that materialism is the new God, that technology is the new God. It's the ultimate materialism. And if you cannot catch up with the singularity, I mean, just look at the panic in the child's face when they don't have the the latest tech, you know, be mm-hmm. it gaming systems or whatever. I mean, the real sense of uh, self-worth connected to how much of a cyborg you are, you know, right, <laughs> it's, right. re- it's really turned into the fact that how close are you to a, you know, an engineered object and you keep these things on your body at all times and um, they're constantly monitoring you as much as you're monitoring them. And so if you watch episodes of Black Mirror on the Netflix, uh, I said on the Netflix like an old man, if you watch episodes of Black Mirror on Netflix, you'll get a sense of the kind of dystopian aspect of materialism and tech. But yeah, I I think tech is the new ultimate material and it is the new God. It's candy for the mind, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not always, uh, obviously you can't live on a diet of candy. Now, I wanted to mention real quick about these. We started with objects disappearing and reappearing. If you mm-hmm. haven't listened to Timothy Renner's last two episodes about pandemonium, you'll hear the story of the cedar ball that I sent him and the right. significance behind the cedar ball. But what you didn't mention, I won't mention here because you have a part three to this here for your members. So I won't mention any more about the cedar balls. But what I will mention is the fact that you gifted us two jawbones. Now, we put these jawbones next to tape recorders. I have a nice digital Tascam DR05, which is my go-to field recorder, and I put the jawbone on one of these altars up here in Washington. And within, I don't know, a matter of a few days, the, the jawbone disappeared. So then we went back and reviewed the audio, and there was no sound of the the jawbone being taken. The second time we put the jawbone in a glass jar and we put your crystal rock on top of the lid to the canning jar that it was in and nothing touched it. So we took the lid off and I stuck the recorder by the glass jar. I stuck it in front of the glass jar, in fact, and we take pictures and video of all this stuff before and after. And Erin goes out on one of her little nature walks with our three pugs 
And as she rounds the corner away from where this jawbone is, she gets over to one of these S, well, we call them S trees, which they're, you know, giant dug firs that are, look like the letter S. And she's standing over by one of those S trees and on the recorder, which she can't see where the recorder at this point, she uh, totally unaware of what's going on. I record the sound of this glass and bone being fiddled around in haste. What's interesting about it is that if that was a critter taking this jawbone, A, it's the first bone that's ever been taken off of our property. And Aaron works with bones periodically. We have a box full of elk bones out in the garage. Now, what was interesting about that, not only did the bone go missing and we heard this, you know, the little scraping on the glass jar, but the tape recorder was picked up and placed behind the glass. You know, it had to be, it had to be moved that way to face the way it was. Not only that, the memory card, the little rubber insert to the memory card, the flange, I guess, was pulled out like something was messing where, where, you know, the, the taped memory could be of this. So the, the bone was gone. We got the, you know, the audio of it. I sent you the audio, but I don't know if you knew that part that the actual recorder was picked up and moved behind the glass and the glass remained exactly where it was. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, well, we should mention that. So these weren't just bones I found. I mean, I did right. find them. They were bones right. I found, but they were bones I found on Bigfoot investigations. So I, I was in one of the areas I write about in my books, Toad Road, one day, and I found a skull that was at eye level. It was impaled on a branch. It was in the middle of the trail, and it wasn't there three weeks before. This is not hiking land. No one should be there. It's private, private land and so forth. So someone or something with hands was down there in that time and, and put that there. And the events that of that day, the, the feeling I got, and again, this is not mind speak. This is just a feeling I got was as if it was left there for me. Like this is uh, because I picked up another skull the three weeks previously, a little raccoon skull that was in the middle of the trail, perfectly clean. And I felt like the, the feeling I immediately got was like, oh, you like that little skull? Well, I got something really good for you. And it was this this big deer skull. It's on the cover of uh, my book, Don't Look Behind You. It's that, that skull, that's the way I found it. But ever since finding that, and it slowed down a little bit now, but for... I don't know, six months after that, maybe even a year after that, almost every Bigfoot investigation I'd go on, I'd find a skull. And they weren't hidden. They were prominently placed. I wasn't crawling around, you know, digging under brush or anything. My favorite example is a you know, guy called me onto his property. He saw Bigfoot across the pond. I went over there. He didn't even want to go across the pond. He's like, you're going over there? I'm like, yeah, I'll go over there. And uh, I said, tell me where they were standing. And he stopped me and I, you know, raised my walking stick, tell me how tall they were, et cetera, et cetera, all the, all the normal stuff. And uh, when I was done that, I happened to look down at my feet and right at my feet, right where he said they were standing was a deer skull. So <laughs> this was happening again and again and again on every investigation to the, I went with one witness in the show. He had uh, multiple sites he had to take me to. So he had uh, like a, a bunch of class B stuff. That, and then a one class A sighting, as the BFRO would term them. So he saw them once, and the other places he, he heard noises uh, that seemed to correspond with, with Bigfoot activity. So he was taking me to the locations, all these different locations where he experienced this stuff. 
every single one we stopped and I found a, a deer skull at every time we stopped. He, and he's looking at me like, what's going on with you? I'm like, I, I don't know. I just like th- this happens. So the skulls were a thing, you know, they became a thing. So that's why I sent that the, I sent you one of the white rocks from Hex Hollow, which is that initial uh, area I was talking about where I was building cairns and, and having them change. And I think I sent you, did I send you some slag from Cadoras? I think I did. Um, I, I don't think we, I don't think so. I'm going to have oh, to check, okay. check with Aaron on that one. I mean, we've talked about slag mm-hmm. and how it's shown up at the paranormal hotspots before, but, um, I don't think I worked with your slag, Timothy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I may, I may not have, have sent it. It's at this point, it's, I didn't keep record of what I sent. I just, you know, kind of made your box and, and, right. sent it. and you sent me, what you sent me was all stuff that you felt you had been left. Oh, and I sent you a feather. Um, yeah. And it was all things that, that, that we felt yeah. in one way or another had been exchanged to us. And we thought, well, let's put them out. Let's put the stuff that I've been gifted in a sense out in your area. And I'll put your stuff out in mine. And let's just see what happens. Let's see if there's some kind of response to this. And if you remember at first, I was very much like, I don't know if that breaks the rules or not. And then I thought, well, no, I didn't ask for any of this stuff. This is all stuff that just seemed to be left for me. So I think it's, I think it's within the rules. You know, when I talk about the rules, I, I, it's, they're not explicit rules. These are just sort of uh, things you pick up from folklore over time. Like, you know, it's bad to do this because it angers the, the earth whites or whatever. I mean, it is a tantamount to having kind of a genie in a bottle. The others pay attention to what you like and what you're into. For example, down at the Al Moon Lab, uh, one of the property owners, Cindy Adams, her name is out there, I guess I can say it. She really wanted a, uh, something gold. She kept asking for gold. She said it as a lark. But uh, right after she said it, on top of the canopy of my trailer, was a turn-of-the-century brass gold rifle casing. <laughs> There's an example of that. Then she said, okay, bring us a bag of cash, all right? <laughs> right, right across the, the gravel road in one of the food stations that we put inside of a green mailbox in the woods, attached to the handle was an unused grocery bag, like one of those uh, cooler ones that has a zipper. Mm-hmm. And... Um, zipped up were three little blackberries that hadn't even stained the white plastic inside of it. It goes on to be even weirder. She had heart surgery and uh, I think she had uh, like a severe bypass or something like that. She recently got out of of surgery and uh, beneath her hummingbird feeder in the backyard was a little glass heart sitting at the base of the tree. We'd move that glass heart periodically to other branches and the heart would find itself on other crooks of the same tree or it'd be placed back, you know, in in another weird place. So those are just three small examples of something paying attention. A lot of this stuff seemed to play this matching game where it's just like, oh, you collect walking sticks? Well, we got a walking stick. We'll set it up against your trailer. Oh, you you mentioned rabbits? Okay, well we'll give you a dead rabbit and we'll lay it out so fresh that it looks like it just croaked right there when you found it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're, you're afraid of snakes. We'll leave you a snake in the exact same spot where you had that rabbit laid out and it'll be so fresh that it's still kind of writhing and its head will you know, be pinched off right next to it. Yeah. So those stories go 
on and on and on. And now they've happened here. So when it comes to your skulls, absolutely. 100% something is out there listening to you. And only Timothy knows the difference between a fluke and repetitive synchronicity. Oh, I've collected them since I was a kid. So I'm an artist. I like to draw them. And I've always thought they were interesting. I've always collected them since I was a little, little kid, like 10 years old or younger, maybe. So I'm very tuned to that color of bone. Like as I'm walking, if I'm taking a hike, I'm kind of tuned to that color. Stuff will, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to it. So I've been collecting my entire life. And I've, I don't know, double, tripled my collection since, <laughs> since that happened. Like that's how many, I have so many skulls now. My daughter gets a big kick out of it. She, she likes them too. She's an artist. And she's like, oh, we have inside and outside skulls. And that's, you know, <laughs> too many to have in the collection anymore. That's it's, awesome. Yeah, it was just, it got, it got to the point where it was like, oh, of course. And I'm just picking them up and, you know, throwing them in my pack. Or if, a, you know, if my car was nearby, putting them in my car. It's like, you know, of course, they're, they're, that's, that's what they are. But yeah, that one time I asked out loud and, and I guess, you know, it's, it's funny to think of this way. And you, you think, well, was there not an old skull available in the area and they wanted to give me what I asked for and so they just ripped the head off of a groundhog and left it. I mean, that's the kind of bizarre thought you have to, you know, you end up thinking, I guess you don't have to, but that's what I'm thinking. Like, couldn't they not find us, you know, a skull without gore on it? So they just killed a groundhog and and left me the head. I, it, well, how fresh was the groundhog when you found it? Oh, fresh. And just the head. No body. It was just the head and the, the jawbone was, was ripped off the head um, next to it. But uh, there was fur, you know, bits of fur all around. That's what caught my attention first. And then uh, it was very, very fresh. It was just like and it was, was it obviously placed? I mean, it, was it hard to miss because of where it was put? There was no way I was going to miss it because, well, it was in a this uh, circle of trees that I'd never been in before. That's the other thing. I'd never been in. I'd, I've hiked this park a million times. I know this park like the back of my hand. And I'm walking through this field and I look up and I was like, I've never been in that little circle of trees. Never. And I, I mean, I've lived here now for I don't know. I moved here in 1993. So whatever. No, 1995, 1995. I moved here. I was, I was hanging out here in 1993 with, with uh, my, with Allison who, who would become mm-hmm. my wife. So I've been hiking the area since 93, but uh, living here since 95 or 96. And I'd never been in there, never been in there. And I thought I need to go in there. I need to see what's in there. It's not big, but it's about a maybe half acre big, you know, circle of trees, maybe a quarter of an acre, maybe not even a half. But uh, I walked in there and there's a stone mound inside there, which is a, a whole other thing. If it was in Ireland, it would be called a fairy fort. Uh, it, we're in America, so it's, we're not allowed to call them fairy forts, apparently, but <laughs> it serves the same purpose. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm walking up to the top of this mound of stones and I start seeing little bits of fur just all the way around. And then right in my pathway was this, this decapitated head. And, and like I said, I, I broke the rules. I'm the one who backed out in fear you know, and I didn't take it. And, uh, I feel a lot of, you know, kind of negative things happened after that. And I, I don't blame anyone but myself. I, you know, I asked for something. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't take it. You're not going to like what I talk about next. Cause we've kind of broached the subject before, but, um, it, when you're talking about a fairy mound or a ring of trees or circles or rocks or anything that, uh, you know, is out in nature that looks like it's, it, kind of purposely planted or put there, uh, I can't help but bring up the fact that 
Twin Peaks, right? We, I know you've been a, a, approached about this TV show, Twin Peaks, but there's something going on with one of the co-directors there, Mark Frost, who's really into understanding mythos and uh, exactly what you're into. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they talk a lot about these doorways within this town going into the Black Lodge and the Red Lodge and what's called the re- the waiting room. And in order to get into this area, you have to go through the sycamore trees, which are in a circle. And uh, there you kind of face your mirrored self, your doppelganger. And that there again is another analogy to what we've already spoken about. You kind of face your ego, your worst self. Nature is a mirror. That's what Aaron always says. And within this, you know, this waiting room, your ego, your mirrored self your doppelganger basically approaches you and if you can't defeat it in there it escapes and it kind of takes over in the physical world which is basically you know you basically allowed yourself to have the ego take over these are just kind of subtle issues but not only that they've got you know the market on the plaid man phenomena you know they they were uh, talking about the idea there being this woodsman which i think they call it back in 1989 where this woodsman would approach and uh, basically be this harbinger to heal evil and uh, that's its role in, in the show is that it seems to heal those who have bad intent and uh, they focus hardcore on it here in season three to the point where it kind of becomes one of the main characters it's not exactly what like you're describing but um, I did want to mention too get off the Twin Peaks thing there. I'm just giving your general audience an idea that Twin Peaks is, is worth investigating. But I did an episode not too long ago with a gal uh, that was retired Coast Guard that was struck by lightning and now uh, computers break down in front of her. Her watch doesn't function when she wears it and she feels like the lightning strike had something to do with it. But she had um, an encounter with a man in plaid. She called him a lumberjack, but she was describing exactly what you've described. And her father was kind of explaining that maybe it was a prior residence of the house that came to visit and guard the house. But um, yeah, that was the first plaid man report I took. <laughs> yeah. You'll get more. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's, it's so part of something, you know, that, yeah. that uh, the, the longer you do it, you'll get more. And a lot of people don't realize like it's a thing, you know, to them it's, they saw a ghost in plaid or they had a mm-hmm. encounter with a weird guy who happened to be wearing plaid. Even lately I've been getting some stories some, for some people. Um, one woman didn't want to come on the air, but she told me a story about uh, someone she saw hanged. And I don't want to give away the whole story cause it's going to be part of my book, but uh, she, she saw which she believed to be some sort of phantasm or a ghost or something of, of a, a hanged man who, who had hanged himself. And she was very upset. And she said, uh, she checked the newspaper the next day. She thought somebody had hanged themselves in this particular location and nothing ever came up. No stories ever came up. And she gets done telling the story. And I said, just out of curiosity. And then she wasn't a podcast listener. She did not listen to my podcast. I said, just out of curiosity, what was he wearing? And she said, Oh, red plaid like a red plaid shirt and blue jeans <laughs> oh, there you go <laughs> uh, you know then i had to explain to her that, that, yeah. that it means something and and so forth but that's the other thing that's that's coming up with that and yeah i don't i don't know if that's some kind of like i'm playing with the idea of the like the, the, the lumberjack archetype being the sort of half a wild man and connected to all this because of that you know this is this is not with, with the 
the Bigfoot being the full wild man, you know, and this, this being sort of this intercession thing, this in between wild Mm -hmm. man and, and civilized man. I don't know if there's anything to that or not, but uh, it's certainly showing up around a lot of stuff from, from cryptid things to, you know, again, ghost things, to UFO things, this guy in flannel or plaid or check shirts seems to be showing up everywhere. Let me ask you this. Have you ever taken a report from someone uh, with a sighting of a Sasquatch wearing clothes? I haven't, but I've read reports of them. Okay. Yeah. Including including plaid shirts. And yeah, exactly. Right. And it's almost like, you know, the Hulk trying to stretch, you know, uh, a regular man-sized shirt over there. Well, let me correct that. I did have a guy on who told it was his father's story. And he told me the story and he said, it sounded for all the world like it was going to be a Sasquatch sighting. Like, I didn't know this story was coming. Like He didn't preview this with me. He just dropped this on me in the middle of the interview, which was awesome. It was, it was you know, an awesome surprise. He says, I got this story my father told me. So he said his father and, and his girlfriend, and they were on a double date. They were you know, parked out somewhere in the woods, near the woods. And uh, the two guys are drinking beer. They're kind of leaning on the car on the outside. The, the, the women are in the car and they hear something big coming down the road, but two on two legs. And it's, you know, those thundering footsteps were unmistakable, something big. And they know it's coming towards them and they can't see it. And they get worried enough where they get in the car and they say, well, maybe we should get out of here. They get in the car and the rear end of their car gets lift up, lifted up uh, the entire rear end. And this is a, in the 1960s. So we're talking about a, you know, a heavy car. This isn't, anything light he asked his father well did you ever see anything and his father said i looked in the rearview mirror and all i could see was red plaid <laughs> so yeah it, it, for all the world it seems like you know a bigfoot and I've, I've collected these other bigfoot stories of them lifting cars and, and you know messing with cars the you know the lover's lane type reports right and you know this sounds just like that except for the red plaid you know I took a report from a guy that uh, was in charge of delivering stacks of newspapers around uh, the outer boundaries of Eugene, Oregon, and the the more rural areas. And he pulled over, you know, oh, dark 30 to take a leak. And as he's uh, taking a leak, he sees this giant homeless man stand up from the embankment. And as this huge, herkling homeless guy that's way out, out in the woods stands up, he turns to the profile and he sees what he thinks is a basket on this huge eight foot tall, three foot wide, hairy guy. <laughs> and um, he, he asked me, he's like, you know, I think I saw a Bigfoot with like a backpack on man. I mean, like it was like strapped around <laughs> its shoulder. And I, you know, I, who knows the case, maybe it was a juvenile, maybe it was a backpack, but uh, that was the only one that I'd ever take, but it, I'd taken, but I've, I've heard stories of them, including the one you just told of, of them possibly wearing fedoras or, or shirts that are ripped up or carrying items. I mean, some of the neatest places uh, I've been to, some of the greatest stories and events that have happened to me, uh, one of them is chronicled in Tom Powell's book, Edges of Science. It involves a pair of basketball shoes that were presented after all this Bigfoot activity. So was the Bigfoot carrying around these, uh, you know, size 10 basketball shoes uh, for years and years? Do they have these items stored in certain places? I don't know, but there seems to be sightings of them actually 
walking around with, you know, clothes, not exactly off the rack, but maybe, you know, off the clothesline or, you know, I don't know how it works. Yeah. And I've wondered, you know, since collecting all the historical reports I did for the, for my historical books, which I'm still working on, I'll, I'll get more out after I'm, I'm done this, uh, this, this two book series with Josh, but collecting those and then working on, on this with Josh. And we do talk about, you know, Bigfoot wearing clothes and belts and, and other, you know, implements like that, carrying guns and so forth. There were, there seemed to be, I will say more reports of, Bigfoot in clothes in the Victorian era back there, back in the 1800s. And I initially chalked it up to Puritanism. I thought, and this may be the case, I I don't know, but I thought, okay, these newspaper editors, they don't like the idea of a big naked man running around in the woods. Maybe they're just putting clothes on them for the reports. Right, 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 right. Scandalous, you know. For God's sakes, man, put on a cod piece or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) But now I've started to play with this idea in, if you look at the way the UFO phenomena has changed, it's gotten stranger over time. And it seems to, the the UFOs people were reporting in the 1800s were airships. They were like big balloons and blimps and stuff before there were balloons and blimps. And then in the 50s, they changed to this kind of almost uh, Art Deco looking, you know, this this concept of of what we have, it's our concept of what aliens you know, spaceships. Right. Like. Yes. Yes. And now they're, they're, you tend to get more of these like weird plasma reports where these things are amorphous or, you know, flying weird snakes and jellyfish and stuff. It seems like the UFO has changed over time. I am wondering if the wild man has changed over time, if it's gotten wilder, especially as, as we've gotten further away from nature, has our wild man, has our concept of the wild man, if we are, I use the video game analogy you know, if we're in a sense skinning these things, you know, like they say is something in a video game, it says, you know, it's just a different skin on it. Changes oh, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Are, are we essentially skinning these things differently over time? And our wild man, as we've gotten further away from nature and, and more locked into, you know, the, everything that, that modern life provides, has our wild man gotten wilder? Uh, you know, certainly some of our Bigfoot reports are, are very wild now. Our, our wild man reports are very, very wild. Yeah, on that same note of uh, clothing uh, attached to the phenomena, I had uh, William Becker, a psychic medium out of uh, Oregon City, do a conference for one of our live events. And uh, we did a, a class on basically how to tap into your inner psychic after the show. And uh, he brought up a point with the ladies that showed up for the class. And um, he said, you know, unfortunately, women tend to get more negative responses out of poltergeist from other female ghosts. And I said, well, why would that be William? And he said, well, look at how women are dressed compared to, you know, someone from the 1800s, you know, they are aghast at uh, some of the, (laughs) you know, the costuming uh, that women wear now compared to what they wore back in those parochial times. I'd never thought of it like that. You know, here you have the, uh, uh, misunderstanding, I guess, of, of what's going on culturally here compared to their time is a really fascinating road to go down. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you have some uh, some audio here. I don't have any audio from, from you or from Pandemonium, but um, 
why don't uh, why don't we play some clips? And do you want me to give some context to what you're about to play? Well, before we move on to that, since we we were brought up the stuff we traded, can we just have okay. a little talk about cedar balls? And we can talk about the cedar ball. I'm fine with that. Um, okay and slag and i was going to say springs but you sort of debunk the springs which is <laughs> and, and feathers and so forth um well i didn't debunk the spring that i left out that had the feather wedged in it and i haven't talked about that at all but so right. that we can talk about that I, that one's still credible to me but right and so it's very interesting to me and again the, you know so you sent me the cedar ball you had no clue I was taken to pandemonium. You didn't know I was going to pandemonium. I didn't. And in fact, I said it many times, you, you sent this stuff for me to, for me to leave kind of around here where I could check it on a frequent basis. But I thought, well, I'm going there. I'm going to try it. I'm just going to try this thing. And I thought if it doesn't get moved or anything, I'll just bring it back. Maybe, maybe you know, if nothing happens, I'll just, I'll just bring it back. But it did get moved and I left it there after it got moved. But so I put it out and like I said, it got moved to the edge of the rock. We talked about that on the show. Uh, well, and the only reason that I brought up a cedar ball was we have cedar balls in our closets for our clothes, and periodically the cedar balls will end up in the wheelbarrow outside, or they'll be like on a shelf or something like that. And we had a cedar ball end up in the washer, and it was dry, and the clothes were wet. It still had the fragrance of the cedar attached to it. It wasn't put through the laundry. It was placed in there after the laundry was deposited. We can tell that because it wasn't wet. And so that's why I reached out to you. I was like, hey, do you ever have anything weird happen with the cedar ball? And that's when you said, oh, okay. Yeah, but that was, I had last seen it 10 a.m. that morning. That's the thing. And then you you asked me about it. So right away, I'm like, what's going on here? And again, yeah, I was like, does he want it back? Because now I don't know (laughs) if I can get it back. Right, 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 right. Like, right. What's what's going on with this? And uh, I think you were away for for from your computer or your your you know however yeah. we messaged back and forth so right. away for a while. So it's a little while before you got back to me. You're like, oh no, I just oh. <laughs> you thought I was offended. Like I need my balls back. <laughs> well, no. I, like part of it means like, does, does is that what he wants? Like, why would he be asking about it like right, right, right. now? And right. it seemed like so prescient that it came at that moment. I'm like, why is he asking about this like now? After we had the you know, like that morning is when we saw it moved to the edge of the rock. So it was right on the edge. Like you couldn't get it any further on the edge without it falling over the edge. So that's why, like if it was a squirrel, he stopped at the perfect moment rolling that, that cedar ball. I don't know how he did that because it was just perfectly balanced there. In fact, Chad just tapped it and it rolled back into the, there's a little like pocket in the, in the rock. Uh, He barely like touched it at all. And it just rolled back in there and he tried to rebalance it in the same place. And it just kept rolling back in there. So he couldn't rebalance it where it was. I mean, the way I interpret this moment here is this is the way it seems to work is that you have a question and then you are skeptical about whether or not it's a squirrel. And then I double down and say, Oh, I just had this synchronicity happen regarding the thing that you're questioning. Right. It's basically to say, Hey, yeah, it was us. We're we're doing it right now. We know you're going to get this message. Yeah, right? So then we go back and forth, and now I'm thinking a port. So I'm thinking, like, holy moly, I last saw it at, at 10 a.m. Eastern time. You, you saw it whatever time in the afternoon, you know, Pacific mm-hmm. time. Holy moly, this isn't a port. I need to get back there and check that. And, you know, people, it, patrons heard on episode three, we went, we went back Friday, checked it, the ball was there. So 
But then I had to contact you and make sure you still had the one you were talking about, that it wasn't sort of bouncing back and forth through time. Right, 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 right. And I was wondering, like, well, did he secretly, like, uh, write a, a number on it so he would know what cedar ball it is? I mean, you didn't know if I had more than one cedar ball anyway. Right, uh, right. And we do. I mean, we have, uh, there's like 10 of these things, and they're all basically in the sock and underwear drawer. And they take them out of the drawers somehow, some way, close the drawers behind them and stick them in weird places. That's why I thought, well, if there's something that has moved around consistently lately, it would be these darned old balls. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it ends up, I, you know, I do not think they were in a port. And, and I had, you know, the, the few people I was talking about this with about, the, you know, that was letting in behind the scenes, they were like, if that thing, like, if that's gone from pandemonium when you go back, like you need, like that ball needs to be studied because for something to do that, you know, to, to have an apport that you need to take that and have it, have it looked at and, and this and that, cause there could be whatever residue. I don't know. You know <laughs> it's, it's beyond, beyond my, my, uh, that, that's totally possible and doable. Um, that I think that will happen eventually if we mess mess with this. Now here we are talking about it and I think the others get off on the right people talking about this stuff collecting evidence and, you know, getting all this stuff documented that goes down the ego train, but we're having fun with this. We have a good attitude about it. I, I think eventually something like that will happen under your watch. It's happened under my watch. It's yeah, happened, I, it, I think on, I can definitely say it's happened on one occasion, possibly two other times, but yeah, what, but, but, what like, could be, go yeah, ahead. Like I said, on, on the, on the patron show, I said, so it wasn't an apport to, to my knowledge, unless it's really bouncing back and forth. <laughs> like, right, that would right. be, be crazy. But uh, to our knowledge, it's not. But still, what an incredible coincidence that you would ask about it on that day without, you didn't know, not only did you not know that I was messing with the cedar ball, you didn't know I was going to pandemonium, you didn't know what I was doing. And then you just on that day, you happened to ask about it. There happens to be a cedar ball left for you. It's, it's just this amazing synchronicity. Well, yeah. because it only happened because of the airport that we caught on video where this white rock went 30 miles within a matter of two minutes to the uh, threshold of a bathroom door of a family member. And we caught it all on camera. Once that happened, I was like, well, now we, ha now we're testing this, we're playing with it. And I know that Timothy is going to do something eventually with that cedar ball. So I might as well ask, you know, is this the moment? Can it we was. can we document this? It was. It was the yeah. moment. Yeah. So, you know, it, it very, very strange. Very, very interesting. We started getting the slag stuff and you contacted me and said, hey, hey I, we found slag around here too. I had no clue about that. I, maybe you mentioned it to me before, but I don't remember. I don't remember that. Uh, so that was new to me when you said, yeah, we've been finding slag around Al Moon as well. Slag and aggregate rock. Um, <laughs> whatever is up with construction rock or like old uh, curbs or sidewalks or fireplaces out in the woods, slag and aggregate rock would appear in weird spots. Yeah. That's super interesting that we had all the slag stuff. And then feathers. Feathers mm -hmm. are, are one of the hard ones, I guess, because it's like, I mean. Anything could leave a feather, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but when they're left in weird places, and you ask for them, and they're stuck in a little spring ball, kind of like woven in between the spring, 
um, at that point, it no longer becomes like, well, you know, here's what's interesting about that. How can we play this part off? Here I left, uh, if anybody knows the spring I'm talking about, it's the round ball spring inside one of those shaker cups that you put, you know, like your creatine shakes in and shake it up and that little metal balls in there. I'd taken one of those probably because I'd subconsciously remembered that you were working with springs or had a spring incident. And that was well after uh, you and I had spoken and text about this whole thing in pandemonium. And so I grabbed this thing and I put it at the base of the tree where I hang these wood watchers where we gotten other weird stuff before. And I'm listening to your episode and you're talking about the spring and I'm not even connecting the dots. And then you're talking about the feathers and I'm not really connecting the dots. And I, I go out to this tree and woven in the spring is a feather. I mean, I, I can't imagine a bird losing a feather and wedging it into this ball spring at the right. base of the tree. Just, it falls in this perfect uh, way. To, yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, and th there's some other stuff that happened within like the same five minutes of finding that feather in the spring that involved a, a fossil that was laid at the, the barn door that, I mean, we don't have any clam fossils out here in the in the forest. And here in front of the barn doors where the, the Al Moon knee impressions sit, where we've, I kind of feel like they have a target on their back as far as activity. <laughs> Um, we find this clam fossil sitting right in front of these barn doors and it's bright white. It's two clams fossilized in sand. And then I find this spring with a feather in it. So it's as weird as we're saying folks. I mean, here yeah. they, they, they kind of have to sit through, you know, through us talking about stuff that is tailor made only for you and me and just like, okay, springs, feathers, balls, but when this stuff happens to you, you'll be talking about balls and springs all day long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Suddenly yeah. springs, like an old rusty <laughs> right. spring becomes the most interesting thing in the world. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I guess we could move on to the sounds now. These are awesome sound clips you sent me. And once again, it was your episode 37. I believe. Yeah, the last one. I think I, I officially put it out uh, today. It would be the 29th or 30th of September. Which, which has a ton. So Strange Brow episode 37 has a ton of this audio on it. It's so compelling, all of this stuff. Yeah, it's 21 clips. Some of them are kind of glued together. Uh, some of them are looped. But uh, they're 21 clips over 1,400 hours worth of audio. So you can imagine... You know, this is like 5% of uh, actual hours that we collected, probably a lot less than that, but uh, 21 best of clips, not all just Sasquatch stuff. We got a lot of other weird stuff that we it's, put in the beginning. I mean, it's strange because I knew we were going to talk. We talked about like, hey, we should do this. I was really going to say, hey, do you have any audio? Because I know you ran an audio recorders. I was going to say, hey, do you have any audio you could share? And then like this morning I wake up, I'm, I do my morning ex exercises. It's a good time to listen to a podcast. So I'm doing my exercises and here's this episode. <laughs> all this audio. You know, I didn't end up saying that. So I was like, right, right. all this audio. I was like, fantastic. Well, I heard your episode on pandemonium. I was like, okay, I... I, I've been wanting to do this for so long, but dreading the editing that goes mm -hmm. into it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if, if Timothy can find time to do this, God dang it, I'm going to devote some time and just knock it out. So well, I, yeah, I, I knuckled down. 
I loved it. So let's talk about these two clips you sent me. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, um, let's go ahead and play the EVP. Now, the scene behind this is, um, if you hadn't listened to uh, prior episodes of Strange Brow, there's this large shop. It's a two-stall shop that you could park two large RVs in. It's very new. It's recently built, less than six months old, probably more like three months old at this point. Fresh cement poured on it, and it seems to be a catalyst or a calling card for all this activity. Now, is it these large Sasquatch, likely reported Sasquatch knees, I believe, that we cast it in plaster sitting inside this garage? Is it this large Bigfoot that I'm constructing for Ron Moorhead as an homage to the Sierra sounds? Is it the fact that the activity has been happening there for eons? We don't know. But um, we had some interesting theories about why there's so much paranormal activity in and around this particular spot. So we started leaving a recorder and um, we would actually leave recorders inside it, outside it, and trying to figure out how this whole phenomenon works, if we could trigger it, if we could study it, if we could interact with it. And so this is a classic EVP and um, I have a hard time understanding what it's saying. Uh, I think it needs to be looked at closer. What I can tell you is that there's no uh, background scatter. There's no noise contamination coming in. These these sounds are happening well after midnight. And generally, well, in order to even access this area, you have to approach it through a gravel field. And so that didn't happen with an EVP, you can't sneak into the garage without going through the deadbolt lock through a gravel field. So we would definitely hear that happen if this was noise contamination. So this is a sound, what I believe, from inside the garage of a male voice saying something. So I'm going to play that three times so people can hear it. Is the reverb on that consistent with the reverb that you would get if you were speaking in that garage? No. Um, there is an echo in there, and it does, I mean, it does have metal ribbing on the sides and the top of it. So the, it, it, there is a, an echo, but the, the type of reverb that you get with these EVPs is, has an ethereal tunnel effect to it. Yes. And um, this pop, snap, crackle, pop, Rice Krispie effect that happens right before or right after they erupt. Yeah, see, now I didn't, this is something I didn't realize, and I've captured this before and thought it was like, I don't know, just either regular mic stuff or something popping mm -hmm. off. You know, I never even considered it as part of the phenomena. I, I honestly, I think uh, it's an energetic force making its way through matter. It's, it's crossing through matter. And when it does that, it has kind of a sonic boom effect through the matter it crosses into. So if it's cement, if it's wood, if it's metal, if it's glass, if it's flesh, if it's fabric, you'll get that sound. And so a lot of sounds we would get would be the sound of wood popping or the sound of cement being slapped or the sound of 
you know, a physical object uh, being hit, struck, or something to that effect. Um, we, we went so far to even put a baby camera inside there and a baby monitor to see what kind of critter could be doing this. So, you know, we, we locked that place down on two occasions. We, we found a bird had a, somehow wiggled its way up into the rafters, but it was so, so obvious that it was a, a bird up in the, in the rafters there. You could hear the wings flap, you know, when they're struggling to get out of there. Right. So there's all sorts of panic. And then there's feces and there's feathers. And uh, so that happened on two occasions. And we found ways to debunk whether or not that kind of stuff was happening. But as far as that's concerned, I don't know what language that is. It, it has an intonation to me of, and, and and we'll get into this more later with these mystery lady sounds of uh, of having a kind of a Native American sound to it. And we're very close to Native American land off of the Kalapuya River in the Umpqua Valley. So is it possible this uh, garage is resting on top of something sacred? Have we disrupted the spirits? Well, dude, if we did, they're certainly really nice about it. <laughs> there was, <laughs> I mean, there was n- there nothing nasty that happened. I mean, everything was a gift. I don't know what to think. Yeah, yeah, I, I do want to address that too. But let's, before I get too off track, let's go into this other sound clip. So what do we have with the second one? This uh, the stomp growl. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we'll go back to Sasquatch stuff. Uh, okay. You know, we, we're finding greasy handprints on the bed of the truck uh, with hair attached to the fingers. And we're finding deep footprints penetrating through the gravel up next to the shop. We're finding knee impressions in the hillside. Uh, the owner ends up having a sighting about a month and a half ago on or near the property. We have neighbors, a farmer lives next door that says he has a giant blue-eyed bear (laughs) that follows him down to his house from the woodshed. The gal that lives in the yurt in the forest above there gets pine cones thrown horizontally at her house. Her father, who lives in the woods down the way, cat goes missing, and then about a week later is delivered to his back porch with its head smashed. Mm. And then, so we, we decide to leave out a recorder. I mean, what else are you to do at this point? I, I'm too uh, far long in this game to leave out game cams and thermals and try to, to get footage that way. But audio, A-okay, well, they, they didn't have a problem with it. As I said, they, they never even heard our recorder. The only time that we even hid our recorder from them was because the elements were coming down and we didn't want to get our stuff ruined Mm -hmm. but um this is a parabolic dish pointed towards the tree line of acres and miles of of forest there's an apple orchard uh beyond that or in front of that area and a deer fence and the parabolic dish is being used nightly from like 9 to 9 a.m all summer towards the tree line and this is where we would find gifts and rocks and hair samples and bent T post that would be miraculously bent back into shape the next day. So what you're about to hear is the sound of something pop, just like we're talking about. And then out of that pop will begin this stomp. And I beg people, and I'll, I'll tell the audience again, uh, spend the time to find the right audio listening device to appreciate these sounds with, i.e. headphones or your car stereo with the engine off and crank up the bass 
and get ready for a Jurassic Park moment here. And go ahead. I'll let you I'll, play the rest. I'll go ahead and play that three times. I quote you often. I believe it was uh, the last time you were on Strange Familiars, you said something like, for some reason, we're not allowed to video them, but audio is, is okay. It was, it was something along those lines. And I've, I've used that quote many, many times since. So I, I thank you for that. It's very, very useful. <laughs> and it's true. Well, I think you and I both agree that there seems to be uh, this amount of respect you have to have and you have to be legitimate about it. I don't know what the rules are uh, when it comes to videotaping them, but since the secrets don't want to give up themselves and that seems to be a way of giving up the secrets because I think they have trouble with FLIR myself. I think somehow, some way, the magic of technology, the new God, uh, thermal imaging, I think my be something hard for them to avoid unless they deactivate it. I, de I don't know if they can totally cloak and get away from, from FLIR. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't feel like we have permission to film them. I mean, there's, there's tribes that won't let you take a photograph of them and they you know, feel like it'll take away their soul or something like that. I don't know if that's the angle or, or not, but definitely tried. And I don't, you've tried too, haven't you? Yeah, and I've come to the conclusion, and again, I'm not the first person to say this, but when I have witnesses who are worried, I, um, I've had witnesses who are who are concerned about them. They they don't want them coming on their property. I said, well, put up game cams. You should you should, you should stop <laughs> yeah. it. You yeah, should stop it. and again, I'm not the first person to say that, but uh, it's not. I don't believe it's because they can hear the 
electronics in the game cans and they avoid them or something. I, there's something far stranger going on. Yeah, I mean, we put up a game cam about five feet up in the uh, in the tree in front of the house and faced it toward the tree line. And it took uh, crazy pictures of what looked like a lightsaber floating down the road, uh, three frames of a, a, a box and a lightsaber that weren't attached floating down the road um, about six feet off the ground. <laughs> and then... A couple weeks, I believe, after that, it took 33 pictures of what looked like uh, hair striations covering the lens. It looked like uh, hair uh, and maybe a nipple um, of a breastplate covering the lens. And the, the temperature on the game cam spikes over eight degrees with a matter of a second after something leans over the IR lens of this game cam. So they know what, I mean, I say this and I don't know, it it felt like something knew what was going on and kind of send out, you know, little tiny probes to to figure it out before the real games began. Hmm. Light phenomenon I've seen, I I do believe you'll catch light phenomenon occasionally on cameras. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've definitely seen that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very weird thing. Very weird thing. I mean, if I saw if I saw something inexplicable and I could get it on camera, the temptation would be too much for me to try to not do it. If I had, oh, I've tried, but, yeah. yeah, yeah, I've I've tried, and but the times where I felt I've thought I've seen things, I've in no way have had time to to reach for that camera. <laughs> right, right. It was so quick, it was so quick that uh, by the time I even had the thought camera, it was long gone. Uh, so. Yeah. Now, people that are recording stuff behind them, I think, is interesting. That is very Often, interesting. That's yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. I, I've never tried that before because I, I don't know. I, I have tried it on one occasion, actually, at a remote place where we had activity, and I was just unhappy with the motion sickness of reviewing the footage. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, no more of this, man. So you brought up just uh, before about how you thought it was always a you know, very, very positive experience for you. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to hit on that a little bit. So stepping away from pandemonium and the spring and so forth, and I see it m- more now as, as almost playful. You know, the more I think about it, it was like almost like a, like something coming up and, and, you know, it was creepy, but playful. If that makes any sense, it didn't seem to be any malice in a spring being, you know, twisted into a piece of paracord. There, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly malicious about that. But, um, you know, I was, I was a little freaked out at the time, you know, when, when, the, when the wood knocks were happening around me and so forth. I was glad Chad was there. He, he you know, he was a, a calming influence for sure. You were around this kind of on a regular basis and you're staying in a trailer at the first Boone property. And, you know, you're, you're talking about hearing things walk up to the trailer, hearing things smack the trailer sometimes. I guess my question is, how are you that relaxed with it? Um, well, I mean, I, I would, I would have here to be relaxed with it. Let's, let me right. put it that way. I mean, I would have a glass of wine before I'd, I'd go to bed. That's about, <laughs> that's about it. Um, so it wasn't, you know, due to ambient or drugs or anything of that nature. I was scared at points to the fact that I was scared that something would happen and I wouldn't be able to react to it properly. And I didn't have a cell phone 
there was no access to a signal out there. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, the comfortability part came with the curiosity. It overruled, it just overruled my curiosity, overruled that instinct to be scared. And I was to the point, man, where I was sleeping in 20 degree weather in zero gravity chairs alone at night, waiting for something to come touch me, something mm -hmm. to come, come in and I'm alone, you know, just right there. There's no one going to get to me quick enough if something crazy happens. It got to the point where I spent so long waiting for a place like this to offer itself up to me. And I knew I just knew that it wasn't going to last. I knew something would happen. The house would get sold, and it did, and I'd lose access to it. And uh, I was willing to give up quite a bit, actually, to interact with that property the way I did. But the curiosity to see something that I've been waiting for my whole life, uh, be it you know a UFO or a ghost or, or Sasquatch or whatever was going to present itself, um, was just it overrode my fear instinct. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do understand that because, uh, you know, I'm going back. It's not like I'm, I'm not going to go back there. <laughs> right. I'm going to go back. But, it, you know, in the moment, it was it was pretty intense. You know, I have to say, um, yeah. I will push through that in order to, like, I guess, like you said, like to satisfy my curiosity, I'll push through it. But uh, at least from here, it seems I, I feel like you're braver than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really believe what uh, what Ron Moorhead was saying about the activity of the Bigfoot stuff, that these things, I mean, here are these guys and Ron, you know, going up to the Sierra camp alone. Right, right. A couple times staying in these places there. I mean, he got scared uh, periodically when things would happen. But I believed what Ron said. I believed it to my core being that the phenomena itself is largely friendly and curious and that they have family groups and interact as kind of a protective device periodically to scare you out of the woods because of the fact that they have young. Yeah, there's bad hombres and, and all this uh, that we're talking about. But the stuff that was happening was so friendly and so unique and so charitable. Mm -hmm. And it's ex exactly the way it is here. I find myself... Uh, doing the same thing up here in Washington to a degree that I did down in Oregon, although I have less time here. But I just urge anybody, if you find a hot spot and you're not getting bad vibes off of it, to work through that fear, embrace the curiosity, and really just go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I know that there's stories about people disappearing in the woods and it gets underneath everybody's skin, but man... I, th this may be controversial, but we're all going to go someday and I don't want to go in a hospital bed. So if it's through the wormhole in the woods, uh, you know, maybe I'll take a few friends with me if I can, but <laughs> I, I, I'd much rather embrace the mystery, you know, full bore and it, it's paid off in dividends. Nothing negative has happened and I, I don't feel like uh, my life's in danger and I'm embracing darkness. I feel like I'm conquering darkness actually and, and embracing the light by doing stuff like this. And it's just, um, it's something I guess very unique uh, as a hobby to have, but I guess it's kind of spreading, you know, more and more people are talking about the, the unusual on social media and you're giving a platform to the anonymous to listen to this stuff, I'm giving a platform, all these paranormal podcasts out there, basically like little AA places for people <laughs> to, to, to sit back and hear the stories. And um, it's really cool. 
Yeah, it is. And, and like I said, it's like the overarching curiosity will keep me coming back no matter, no matter what happens. I mean, you know, it, it might, I might need to take a break. I need to take a break, but that's healthy. I think for anything, if, and I, I often advise people that if they, you know, you get into paranormal research, take a break every now and then watch, watch a, you know, superhero oh, yeah. movie, Re- right. read fiction, get, get away, get your mind out of it for a while. And it'll be that much more rewarding probably when you come back to it because, you know, for the break, no one lives on a, a diet of candy alone. Like we were saying. Yeah. And you were saying that your wife kind of reminds you of those things there and, mm-hmm. uh, Oh, sure. Yeah. And it taps you on the shoulder like, okay, time to take off the wizard hat here a little bit. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Come come to the baseball game with me or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Tobe, I think that's a great place to leave off. All right. I do too. Thanks again. And, hey, uh, uh, before we go, tell about your event. Uh, I, I know I've been playing a little commercial for it at oh, the end. Oh, yeah. But, Dude, but, uh, I, tell about your event. I so appreciate that. Real quick, if uh, people want to be involved with something local here, um, if you're anywhere in the Pacific Northwest or near the state of Washington, even Canada for that matter, it turns out that we're going to have some people from Canada show up possibly at this event or maybe the next one. The Manresa Castle in Port Townsend, Washington agreed to let us use their venue in their uh, haunted hotel slash castle. It's an incredible environment to talk about the paranormal. So on October 25th, we're going to do a live free broadcast or podcast. We're calling Podcastle Live. And Ron Moorhead will be there um, as well as uh, the Peruvian skulls, the elongated uh, skulls that he has and talk about the DNA. evidence that has been extracted off of these skulls that says that there's something else going on other than known humanity. Also, we're going to have Sarah Nash, who's a consultant with the LAPD, a psychic medium. She's going to show up and uh, she actually worked at the castle and has had lots of incredible experiences and knows some histor- historical stuff about Port Townsend, which is the t- town this castle's in. And uh, we're also going to have uh, possibly Marcia K. Moore. Now, if anybody watched Ancient Aliens, she was in a recent episode of that where they talked about this giant uh, petroglyph that was seen from a satellite of a Native American with a headdress on. And Marcia does like forensic modeling, uh, curious objects like that. And she was invited on Ancient Aliens to recreate this um, giant uh, earth massive earth sculpture and uh we'll have a theremin player show up for intermission this is going to go on from like 7 to 11 p.m or so and uh barb shoop will be there who's the camera woman behind the infamous cloaking video which was shot up here in greenwater washington so look that up and then a few surprises uh along the way that'll be at manresa castle you can find tickets to go to the Halloween party, which is the day after that on the 26th. It's a masquerade Halloween party in the castle. And you go to the castle NPT, that's the castle INPT.com to get a haunted room. The second floor is the most haunted. That's uh, where Ron Moorhead and I are going to stay on the second floor. It'll give you a chance to hang out with someone like him in a haunted hotel. Just an incredible opportunity. So if you have any questions, and you're interested in this, you can reach out to me on Facebook under Strange Brow Radio or Tobe Johnson 
or shoot me an email at strangebowradio at gmail.com and I'll hook you up. Also, for your listeners, October 12th, I'm going to be at Albatwitch Day. That's our little person, our little hairy person, a little hairy cryptid here in South Central Pennsylvania. We do a festival every year called Albatwitch Day. October 12th, I will be there and I'll be giving a talk on Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. Rick Fisher will be giving a talk. He's another paranormal researcher. We got four paranormal speakers. We have uh, a naturalist named Jack Hubley will be there. He usually brings animals with him, critters and stuff. My buddy Chad, who was on the pandemonium videos with me, he, or episodes with me rather, he will be doing uh, some bushcraft demonstrations. He's very into the bushcraft oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. survival thing. So he will be there. Uh, it should be a great day. There are tons of bands playing. There's stuff to do all day long. And at night, I am giving one of the ghost tours. We're having three ghost tours, 6, 7, and 8 p.m. They're along the river up to a haunted railroad tunnel, and I will be the 7 p.m. ghost tour. So if you want to go with me, you want the 7 p.m. tickets. That's and how, do, how can anybody get in touch with you about um, your artwork and your music? Do they go right to your website? Well, the Outwitch Day is in Columbia, Pennsylvania. That's October 12th. Mm-hmm. And then to, to find me, strangefamiliars.com. All that information, all that contact info goes right to me. Um, it's a one-man show, so okay. <laughs> that's the best place to, to find me. And the book's coming out when? The two-part book, the first the, series? The is first when? part will be out, if all goes well, December. Okay. Uh, Where the Footprints End, part one and part two. Uh, the first part is a lot of uh, more kind of folklore stuff where we connect some very, very old folklore to the Bigfoot phenomenon and just draw a lot of comparisons how much it uh, they seem like they're you know talking about the same thing or something very very similar, and the second part gets into more uh, evidence and things like disappearing trackways and mm-hmm. uh, footprints with three toes and and all this kind of weirdness UFOs and Bigfoot and so forth and, and there's a little bit of everything in both books but the the first book is is mostly like I said it's a lot more the, the folklore stuff and the second book gets into the the evidence right yeah so it, for the my audience uh, subscribe. Uh, rate, review, share uh, Strange Familiars, Timothy's hard work, his amazing books, his artwork, all that stuff helps keep, you know, this uh, little pirate ship afloat because this is all self-funded and um, it, it's nice to, to see those things happen periodically on, on my end and uh, uh, he's so deserving and uh, that's uh, that's what I would ask of you and um, I, I I'd still like to work with you in the future, of course, on some other projects down the road, but um, mainly I'd love to either get out to your area or, or have you get out to, to this area. So uh, I'd like to talk about that down the road. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to make a trip out there at some point. Okay. Uh, so that, I'll talk to you about it off here. Okay. All right. All right. Nice Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope to see you all at Albatwitch Day in Columbia, Pennsylvania on October 12th and at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville, Tennessee on October 19th. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Presents the Strange Realities Conference. Strange Realities.
Come join us for one day of presentations on the paranormal with live music at night featuring Tim Banal, The Rise and Fall of the Flat Earth Theory, Joshua Kutchin, Alien Hybrid Lore, Joe Damari, Pushing the Limits of Reality, Guy Malone, Roswell 1947, What Really Happened, Timothy Renner, Pennsylvania Wildman, and added to the lineup, Mark Anthony Wyatt, Cornish Legends and UFO Sightings, Zach Hunt, a presentation of his book on Rapture, followed by a live recording of the Conspiranormal Podcast, more speakers and music acts to be announced. October 19, 2019, SIR Nashville. Tickets and info at www.strangerealitiesconference.com. $40 at the door, $30 pre-sale. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. Go to StoneBreath.BandCamp.com for more. We are on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Strange Familiars, where you can also join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we are on Instagram, at Strange Familiars. Hey, uh, Tim, this is... Patrick, um, I live in Butler, Pennsylvania. It's, uh, I don't have much of a story, but um, I did see something very strange. Um, I live across from an elementary school, and I was taking my dog out. You know, late is like four in the morning. I, I'm up late, and I looked above the school, and there was like a glow. Uh, I, I mean, I don't explain it. It really is. Um, I live not far from an airport, the Butler Airport, and you know, so I got planes and helicopters and stuff like that flying back and forth all the time. And um, this was definitely not a plane, definitely not a helicopter. It was like a solid, I, I mean, I hate to say triangle because I know triangles are big, but you know, it wasn't a black triangle. It was like lit up full, like orangish, yellow, glowing triangle-like shape, and just there in the sky, not a plane, not a helicopter, not a star, it's much bigger than a star, I mean, it, that is from how far it seemed to be, it was big, and just there, and I'm looking at it, and I just, what the hell is that, and then as I'm watching it, just kind of slowly fades off into the distance, you know, like just floated, you know, like just floating off, and then it was gone. Really weird. Uh, I don't know what it could have been. Uh, there's a few other little things happened, like nothing really 
paranormal or UFO like, but just little things that usually don't happen. Like I saw a shooting star earlier that week. You know, I know owls are a big thing. You know, I heard a few owls before that or during the week. You know, didn't see anything, just heard them. And honestly, I mean, I don't hear owls hooting all night that often around where I live. But anyway, that probably has nothing to do with it. Maybe it does, but yeah, shortly after all that, I saw this glowing thing and exploded off. I love your show and your music, by the way. It's my, my favorite podcast on these things. So keep doing what you're doing. I really enjoy it. And thank you. Bye-bye. and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.